Time to get do. Dose to everyone. It's your producer, Mike Preisner. It is late on the East Coast, 8.01 p.m. here in California. Dark times out there. Hope to lighten the mood a little bit tonight. Goes without saying, please try to join whatever protests are near you in the coming days and weeks and months, hopefully. But we're not talking about that tonight. Right now you're listening to... I don't know, actually. Robbie's going to have to tell you. How's it going, Abby? What's up, Mike? Hey, everyone. Welcome to Dosed. Thanks for joining us late this Sunday night. Thought that we would change it up a little bit. Kind of put a pin in the weekend with the fun conversation. Let's talk about LSD. LSD. The chemical that changed the world. Or I guess at least America helping catapult the hippie counterculture movement of the 60s and 70s. Everybody knows about acid and its profound impact on our culture through art, music, and fashion. And despite its prohibition today, many continue to experiment with it, using the drug to expand their consciousness, elevate their creativity, or just a fucking party, baby. But beyond the hippie aesthetics and mantras like free love, little understand the depths the U.S. government went to experiment with the drug, the true influence LSD has had on politics, and the development of science and technology. Amazingly, we have one agency to thank for it all, the CIA. To join me to talk about the CIA and LSD, from its dark legacy experimenting with the drug against unwitting minds, to breeding psychonaut cultural icons, to injecting the drug into institutions that spawned Silicon Valley's most impactful figures, is who else? My brother, Robbie Martin, and co-host of the podcast we do together, Media Roots Radio. Robbie and I recently did an incredible four-part deep dive from Media Roots Radio, exploring exploring the historical waves of psychedelic drug use, proliferation and prohibition in the United States, Featuring figures like Timothy Leary, Terrence McKenna, Bob Wallace, John Lilly, Alex Gray, Jonathan Ott, and going over so many 
others, as well as so much more. We're coming out with several more parts of the series talking about people like Sasha Shulgin and things like the ayahuasca tourism industry. So if you like this discussion, make sure to check out all of the episodes at Media Roots Radio and support our work at patreon.com slash media roots radio. Robbie, thank you so much for coming on Dosed, baby. Thanks for having me on, Abby. What's up, like, bro? Nothing much. Just uh, <laughs> in the um, in the AI art creation rabbit hole. <laughs> um, and I don't think that's too unfamiliar to you, but uh, we, we don't have to talk about that. We could talk about psychedelics. Um, yeah. Let's scrap it. Let's scrap this whole conversation and just talk about what we've been creating on AI art because that's pretty much all we've Mike and I have been doing for the last five days straight. It's been a pretty <laughs> severe brain hack. Uh, but you know what? It's better than, than going into the dark hole on, on Twitter, I think. It is, yeah. It's a nice departure from uh, you know other social media tools. Um, this one is actually something where you, you, you just put your imagination out there into the world. But, you know, there's a whole dark side to AI, too. But it is, it is sort of psychedelic in a, in a strange way. I mean, it, it does. Oh, hell yeah. So, um, so I guess it is somewhat related. Yeah, right. I mean, it, it is, it depends on the, how far you could push yourself to think of just the most insane shit possible. Right. Um, but already, I mean, I, we've created pretty amazing stuff. It's like some of the best cutting political art I've seen in like (laughs) years came up with, uh, AI. So we'll definitely get to that. Maybe soon we could do like a media roots live stream where we can just like take people's <laughs> suggestions in like real time <laughs> produce some ai generated art um wow. let's get to the topic at hand because there's so much here robbie we did this four-part series we're about to do several more episodes and the whole lsd cia component is one small aspect of the story i think it's one of the more fascinating aspects and potentially one of the better known aspects because of how bizarre um, you know, MK Ultra is and was as a program and how it kind of spawned so many cultural things, uh, you know, Naked Lunch, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, like there's so much that happened with it as well as just bred just conspiracism <laughs> in a way of having this kind of Nazi-like dark experimentation program that literally did treat thousands tens of thousands potentially we actually will never know the true number of people like guinea pigs and Mm -hmm. really did some crazy stuff um you know in the name of fighting communism baby just like so much other heinous stuff that this government does under that banner so you know let's let's dive in here let's talk briefly about you know first i guess just walk us through like the discovery of lsd and why that sparked the cia's interest in the first place sure and then just to start, I wanted to say that a lot of what you just said about like some of the numbers and how we don't know exactly how many people were involved in this as human guinea pigs, it's sort of like the the quintessential limited hangout that the government over the decades has released these little you know packages of documents and you know sometimes given FOIA information requests over that reveal some of it, but it still seems like it's the tip of the iceberg in terms of the scope of it. I mean, we honestly probably will just never know, but. I mean, mm-hmm. going to the question you asked me, um, the origins of LSD are interesting. Um, it was invented um, seemingly by accident by a Swiss chemist uh, in 1943 named Albert Hoffman, who's 
obviously become very famous and associated uh, with psychedelic culture at large now. But initially, he had accidentally dosed himself with this compound that he made. And at the time, he was working for a chemical company called Sandos in Switzerland. And, and so at first, he accidentally dosed himself. And there's some debate about <laughs> there is some debate about exactly what he did to dose himself but the common conventional wisdom about what he did was that it accidentally got through his skin he spilled it on his skin um he might have been also working with some kind of solvent that made the LSD go through his skin now i kind of am generally skeptical of the idea that LSD you can trip off LSD through your skin i know people have said that this is possible if you use a certain kind of solvent plus LSD, but we don't know exactly what he did. It's even possible that on his very first quote unquote accidental dosing that he actually intentionally took at that time. So we're really going by, you know, his official story. Of what <laughs> or he could have like possibly put his hand in his mouth or something, you know, cause it, you're totally right. Like this is kind of the lore of LSD. That's like, you know, you put it on doorknobs and the merry pranksters were like, dosing exactly. kids putting it on shit i mean you can't that doesn't happen there was a recent story in the east bay express about a synth repair person who accidentally dosed himself by touching a synth module that was soaked in lsd from like the 60s and i remember chasing this story down because it was like a local story and eventually my conclusion was that the guy basically lied about what happened <laughs> i don't want to say more about that but it's possible he did accidentally dosed himself in some form. Maybe he touched his mouth. Maybe it went through his skin somehow. But yes, it has contributed to that urban legend of that, you know, you keep a bunch of tabs of LSD in your pocket and you get sweaty at a rock concert. You'll start tripping on like 10 tabs at once. That doesn't happen. Um, but what he did, what he admits to doing is that a couple of days after that, he intentionally took this compound again because of the shocking, completely astonishing over-the-top effects that he did not expect from this. I mean, they were, in his description, they came completely unexpectedly because he didn't even realize he had dosed himself the first time around. So after this insane experience where the way he describes it is he almost experienced like going, like laying on the bed and almost like dying. Like he remembers like it being like, so he was tripping pretty hard apparently even the first time he did it. When he repeated it, um, he went on a bicycle ride, which of course is the infamous bicycle day um, where he, and he describes this in vivid detail in his book, um, my problem child LSD. I think it's called the LSD, a problem child or my problem child, which I recommend people reading. It's probably one of the more readable and short psychedelic books. That's like written by someone who, you know, has a lot to say and, and actually could write well. Um, and I mean, after that, the company he worked for, Sandoz Laboratories, began manufacturing it. Now, originally, they started manufacturing it in all these different forms. They had a form that was meant to be almost like a stimulant, an upper that was like a very, not like a microdose, but it was sort of like, imagine like what people do for microdose these days, but like four times that much. So they even sold like a pill that was supposed to be like a mild stimulant. They sold um, 100 microgram pills i believe of of lsd so they actually would like sell this in a pharmaceutical form it wasn't just that they were a ma chemical manufacturing company and they had like vats of lsd that they would then you know give to other people they were actually manufacturing like pills and things like that at the time um and he's and and actually a lot of that detail 
has been sort of lost over the years because apparently the records were destroyed. And I don't know, this is another whole angle of this, if the CIA was involved in trying to hide Sandoz's records after the fact, but a lot of that information has somehow been gone. Like we don't know exactly what they sold, what forms they sold in, but we do know that they did sell strange things like stimulant LSD tablets. Um, but they also even sold, you know, like, what would be considered like a kind of a mild heroic dose dose in a, t- a tablet form as well. Um, and eventually um, at, you know, at the beginning of the cold war, you know, obviously the whole concept of uh, what we were focusing on after the cold war was communism and uh, you know, sort of com- consolidating power as a hegemon and the CIA uh, got obsessed with this idea of mind control. It's- this was the end of World War II. America had just asserted itself as like the global hegemon, you know, dropped these nuclear weapons. The Cold War was beginning and these people were completely insane. Um, and bizarrely enough, like just obsessed with the idea that the Soviet Union had developed, or at least this is what they say, right? That they thought that the Soviet Union had developed a drug to hijack mines and that they wanted to like get the like coup you know get the chemicals before the soviet union could which who knows i mean they they also claim that um i mean who knows if they actually thought that we know that that's not true obviously the soviet union wasn't doing that but that's what they say and they also say that, like that apparently the soviet union had like bought some of the acid which also <laughs> like i don't think any of this is true it's just like part of the papering over of how insane what the cia really did was well the 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 one interesting thing that we were talking about earlier is that when people started coming back, um, American soldiers from Korea and like speaking out against the United States, they claimed that that was a reason that to say that the Soviet Union must have had some kind of brainwashing mind control thing happening in their country to like make this occur to our soldiers. Not that these people were like disgruntled after experiencing like a horrific, you know, war that they, that was a completely, um, you know, unjustified. <laughs> Yeah, it couldn't yeah. be that they had any sympathy for the other side at all. They had to have like their minds melted by the Soviet Union. <laughs> like, again, I think it's hard to it's hard it gets harder and harder to distinguish between like genuine insane beliefs and like just post like rash like post rationalizations like ends justifies the means rationalizations to just like use on paper. You know, did they really think that or or maybe they were crazy enough to actually think something that stupid. But that was the rationale used for then doing almost like um, counter mind control, you know, warfare. Like we need to figure out what the Soviet Union is doing. And that sort of bled over into this idea of, like you said, that the Soviet Union was apparently purchasing LSD from Sandoz. So we were like, we need to purchase LSD. They must be using it for mind control experiments. So that's apparently, you know, supposedly partially the origin of MK Ultra, but again, it could be a, a our own sort of ends justifies the means rationalization. We probably just were crazy enough to buy a bunch of LSD from Sandoz, which we did, which was at the time pretty much the world's supply of LSD. Like that's how early we got in there. Um, as early as I think it was, what was it, nineteen fifty three? Three, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's. That's way before the hippie era. That's even before anybody knew what psilocybin mushrooms were or anything. I mean, you got to think that this was like, you know, this was like three years after mom was born. So <laughs> very cutting edge, very cutting edge stuff that the CIA was purchasing LSD 
before really it was even on the street. Nobody was really doing it. And then the only sort of pop culture references, I guess, or cultural references we would get about LSD would come out in the form of like almost like more high society, like celebrities or academics or like in Playboy magazine, they wrote an article about it. Um, we would hear about it in academic circles, um, like p- actors like Cary Grant were huge advocates of LSD and they were talking about it. And Aldous Huxley, you know, wrote about mescaline in a, you know, his famous book, um, the doors of perception, but then also became like a strong advocate for LSD. And this was sort of kind of after the CIA had purchased, um, all this LSD. So even that stuff came after, um, just as another example of how cutting edge it was. Right. And this was kind of the Western, coup of being able to synthesize the compounds that of course indigenous cultures for millennia were using and it it's so fascinating that we're talking about a time like this was the burgeoning of the cia this was the covert operations era run by at the time sociopath alan dulles who you know directly implicated in the assassination of john f kennedy potentially other political assassinations after this it's pretty dark that he was the one who oversaw mk ultra and and basically hired um gottlieb and i just found a really bizarre speech like just how weird this is that dulles was giving speeches to like princeton alumni graduating classes being like we need to like hijack people's minds basically he's like can you imagine like you're just graduating princeton you're like why (laughs) like what a what a weird speech that we just got about you know ushering us into this (laughs) this world of uh careerism and we're just being told about how we need to, you know, wage the battle for men's minds because the Soviet Union had like done this, and and he and he even says he's like we call it brain warfare, and then I think like three years after that is when he authorized the big giant you know purchasing of the entire world supply of LSD. This was ten a hundred million doses, and as we've talked about in our episodes, Robbie. It's not equivalent to a dose of LSD today. This was much more concentrated, and we don't, we'll never know. I mean, unless you were alive at the time, maybe you can tell us if you call in, but um, it's definitely different than the watered down doses that you get today. And maybe that has something to do with the fact that there was that huge raid on, you know, the lab, which we also are going to discuss in our series. What, but what was that like? Were you buy like a hundred million hits of acid? Was it in like a. Like a tanker truck or something? Yeah, or like, what? yeah they How shipped they like just that? a boat. <laughs> a giant. Yeah, no, good good question. And it was only for 240 grand. I guess, you know, that was a lot for 1953. But um, yeah, if good question. 10 kilograms. It really, if you really think about that, like if you're looking at it in a room, that's not that much. Um, mm-hmm. That's, what is that, 10,000? I don't even, I'm, I'm American, so I feel dumb. <laughs> we that, don't go by that system here. Doesn't seem like it would. It would, could be done on. Oh, it might just be like a barrel. Yeah, that's exactly. Insane. So that, but that's again, hundred million doses in that little of a amount. It shows you how potent LSD, the molecule, mm-hmm. is. Mm-hmm. Um, active at the microgram level. Uh, like people, when they people are doing microdosing, uh, they're doing like extremely minute amounts of LSD, somewhere like in the ten microgram, sometimes twenty microgram range i mean even lower than that so uh it's it is basically the most potent by weight uh psychedelic chemical known to man as far as i know i mean salvia 
might be like one of the second most. And Oof. then there are other, like, <laughs> and some other like tryptamine like uh, derivatives that are also very active at like low doses, but it's mostly LSD that just like takes the cake. I mean, if you ever see or have or around a, a let's say powdered LSD, do not touch it. Do not like do it. Do not even get close to it. If you breathe, if you actually breathe some of that in, like you might actually like overdose. On I didn't LSD. even know that they could make it into a powder. Well, yeah. I mean, like, I think it is like a powder by, you know, in its natural state. Oh, so wow. crystalline form. And then it's mixed into a solution. I'm assuming that's probably how the, uh, the CIA bought it. It probably right. it was in like powder form. And someone opened the, one of those bags <laughs> without knowing what they're opening. They probably, got like a horrible trip <laughs> yeah yeah no shit um well i think that's why the cia was loving it so much because it's a colorless odorless liquid that you could just completely unknowingly like give someone yeah. um gottlieb himself apparently over the course of mk ultra which lasted 10 years used lsd 200 times so he himself was just going nuts with this stuff uh tripping all the time um you know, he let's talk, let's dig a little bit into MK Ultra and then go into, you know, the broader programs that weren't as sinister. But I feel like we have to really explore how disturbing this got. Uh, very Nazi esque kind of stuff that was going on here. Um, the precursors to MK Ultra Project Bluebird, Project Artichoke, I think one of those was the premise of the men who stare at goats. Um, you know, MK Ultra. Oh, I'm sorry, it wasn't 10 years. It was 20, 20 years long. So as you mentioned, Robbie, we know, I think, 20 years after this started from a FOIA of the financial records that came out of MK Ultra. But Gottlieb himself oversaw, once he left the CIA, I think in 1973, he oversaw the destruction of like 10 giant cases, like huge giant loads, like uh, boxes of all of the records. All of them were completely destroyed. So how much really can we glean from FOIAs after the fact of whatever financial pur purchases were made um, that really explains the depth and scope of these programs? We'll never know. And I think that the only reason we do know what we do know is because of like witnesses and actual victims of these programs. And of course, like the institutions themselves that they set up as front groups to facilitate a lot of this stuff. So many interesting you know, rabbit holes you can go into. I mean, even just the foundations and front groups uh, the alone is interesting. I mean, like Gordon Wasson, who I, we're probably going to talk about a little bit, like was basically being funded by a foundation that turned out to be a CIA cutout. So they were, MKUltra was in all these different, you know, nooks and crannies of sort of basically like ops. I mean, they were doing, they were like operating in public, but doing it through cutouts. And probably one of the most, I would say one of the darker and more well-documented examples of MKUltra human guinea pig experiments was at Edgewood Arsenal. And those records, you know, have been released over the decades. Like I was saying, we don't really know how this full scope of how many soldiers are experimented on, but somewhere in the neighborhood of 7,000 is what we can like glean together with the available data. But it seems like there's probably even way more. I mean, even just, for example, there was an old, older documentary made in 93 um, in the UK called Bad Trip to Edgewood. It was probably the first time I heard about Edgewood. And if you just look on the YouTube comments, you can see believable accounts from other people who were vol volunteers in quotes um, at Edgewood saying basically that they were, you know, 
put through these horrible experiences. So there, there's probably a lot more people out there that haven't um, been spoken to, haven't been accounted for. But what makes Edgewood particularly disturbing is they didn't just test psychedelic drugs and like um, debilitating like sedatives and uh, non-lethal chemical agents on people. They also taught. Um, they also tested lethal agents on people, right? Like for documented lethal agents, and it wasn't just oh, like a really rare thing they did. Actually, if you look at the percentage breakdown of the available data uh, of how many, you know, what agents they used on how many people, incapacitating agents were used thirty percent of the time, and lethal compounds were tested fourteen percent of the time. I mean. That's a, that's a lot, you know, so it's, it's darker than just put, making people have crazy bad trips without knowing what they were being given. They basically, it was almost like Russian roulette. You walked into Edgewood and a lot of people got enticed by basically having a carrot dangled on a stick by one of their superior officers, like announcing, you know, um, during lunch, Hey, there's a new assignment available down at Edgewood. Uh, you won't have to do guard duty anymore. You won't have to like do this anymore. Um, and it's basically like three free days a week. And if you're like a bored soldier who's like, you know, exhausted or something and doesn't want to do some kind of busy work, you probably take the assignment. And that's what a bunch of people ended up doing. And they were told that they were going to be testing basically non-lethal like protection battlefield equipment. That was how they sold it to most people. Like you, you go, you go there and you test gas masks for us and you test like, you know, um, like basically like hazmat suits and things like that for us. They didn't even like tell them initially that they were going to test drugs. Like a lot of these college age volunteers who would later get wrapped up in MKUltra, they knew they were going in to be given some kind of drug, even some, as sometimes they were told they're being given LSD. In this case, they weren't told anything. So you basically go in there and then all of a sudden they're like, oh, we're going to give you an injection of something. And then you're like, wait, what is this? And they're like, <laughs> down, we'll give it to you. And you thought you were going in there to test like a gas mask and some smoke grenade. And all of a sudden you're being injected with like a death dose of LSD. And by death, ego, ego death. Uh, not like because I don't think there's ever been a case of someone actually overdosing. You know, there's no LD50 dose for LSD. Maybe there is, but. I don't. I don't think it's ever been documented. Um, but basically, imagine not knowing what you were being given, and if you were lucky, I guess you were given probably LSD. If you were lucky, you were right. given a dose of LSD that would have been life-changingly mind-altering, like completely. You know, it would have basically been like being dosed against your will because you had no idea you were being given a massive psychedelic, and then. Maybe secondarily to that, if you weren't being given a lethal weapon to be tested on, where you guys you could have died, um, you would have been given something like BZ, which or PCP, um, which uh, which could incapacitate you for you know several days, and in PCP's case can cause brain damage. BZ was a weaponized datura um, atropine like uh, hallucinogenic deliriant not even really you would call it a psychedelic it produced almost like fever-like hallucinations like dream-like hallucinations that could last for up to 72 hours and this is what you were basically you, if i guess if you were you know not lucky enough to get lsd they would give you this and they would actually g give it to you in gas form sometimes you would put your head inside of a balloon and have to breathe in this gas and then basically have to like room with like 10 other people who are also being given different dosages of it sometimes. Some people will be like tripping out of their minds and um, 
you know, just have no memory of the experience afterwards and then be filmed the whole time and be interviewed about it. Uh, but I mean, the crazy part about this is even like as far as in the, into the nineties, when this documentary was made, one of the doctors who administered and did a lot of this like horrific experimentation on people at Edgewood named Colonel James Ketchum is like still rationalizing it in the <laughs> night or not BBC. It's like some UK film crew in 93. And he's like, yeah, we learned some amazingly valuable things about administering these chemicals to people. Like it was incredibly valuable research that we, you know, the military um, thanks us for today. Like we couldn't have, he just like totally glowing about it. And, you know, they're actually interviewing other people who were experimented on by him. And he's not even like apologizing for it. It's, so it's fascinating how actually like Nazi like it is. I mean, right. even into some of yeah, they people. think it's good. Yeah, no, the total empire baby brain rot to the point where they're just like, this was all necessary and justified. Like Madeleine Albright being like 500,000 kids were necessary to kill. So we could just like, like I don't know what. What was the valuable information they they right. like learned that you could trip like <laughs> like what was so valuable about studying people who were tripping on acid the, uh, lsd doesn't work in any military scenario right yeah yeah <laughs> maybe that bz does work and that the military has like secretly been storing it ever since and and maybe we just never heard about it i mean it is sort of weird that we actually you know we we heard all about novichuk forever you know after the Skripal's incident and Russia, I think, came out with some counter accusation that maybe it's BZ, which was sort of like a weird curveball. But it's I mean, to me, it's still funny that no, just nobody knows that that's a thing we did. We made a weaponized, gaseous, hallucinogenic drug that's like if if you took it, it would be like the most nightmarish hallucinogenic experience you'll ever have. I mean, it, it I think there may be some trip reports on Arrowhead. Um and a CIA agent actually, um, one funny incident is he accidentally dosed himself with it, uh, BZ, and he was trying to figure out what to do because he knew it was going to last 72 hours. So as he was like on the come up, he was contacting people, he was scrambling, trying to figure out how to end the trip, abort it with some kind of other drug. And they're like, oh, actually, like we already have like a countermeasure. It's some like tetrahydra cannibal, like cannabinoid. <laughs> Like um like antidote. So they're like basically this CIA guy who's in MK Ultra had to take some kind of like cannabis like um analog to like come down off of BC. <laughs> it's just so weird. I mean that was like in the fifties, you know. So they're already like messing around with like can cannabis analogs to come down from their weaponized hallucinogens um in the nineteen fifties. Well, Robbie, do you know about the you know, like theorizing like whether or not they actually had a very a usable weaponized form of this and use it on people and, and exactly what you're describing of like how nightmarish it would be if they created like a BZ gas thing that would just make you ultra trip out. Um there are some like suspected uh things that they did with it against political targets. I think most famously is Paul Robeson, who, uh, if people don't know who he is, definitely look him up. He was a very famous uh, professional football player, singer, actor, was just like a big star in the United States who became extremely political in the, you know, uh, the 40s in particular um, and became like a major public figure who was pro-communist and anti-lynch, like organizing against lynchings in the United States and all that stuff. And he was uh, completely attacked, blacklisted, you know, had to flee the country 
and he went had this really random sudden mental health breakdown that was just extremely sudden and his family says uh and it was in 1961 and his family believes that it was the mk ultra program and and their the cia's attempts to quote unquote neutralize him but he basically just like all of a sudden one night when he was on tour just went totally insane like freaked out in his hotel room started cutting himself up and then was just basically in a a assisted living facility from that that point on but that was one one uh, potential um target of this this kind of weaponized use of it but i hope people check that. i don't i don't know if you know anything about that robbie but that seems to be a, a likely case of of the cia actually using it on someone who is a, a dangerous political target because he was such a famous beloved uh figure who was like pro-communist and pro-civil rights well there's well, oh go ahead I was just gonna say, it makes me wonder if, like, you, you know, maybe back then you could have gotten away with more giving, unbeknownst to the person, dosing them with like a very high dose of LSD, and w- without, you know, without them knowing what an LSD trip is like, mm-hmm. they might actually going insane. I mean, I feel like maybe today that wouldn't work as well as like a stealth, stealth way to just like make someone have a psychotic break, but you know, probably there was probably a period of time. I mean, a lot of people even today, if they were given LSD without knowing they'd been given it and they had no experience with any psychedelic, they would probably think they were having a stroke or going insane. They would probably call 911. So, I mean, it's scary to think about how that would have been used in that way. I mean, and that's when you can go down a whole bunch of different rabbit holes. You know, I mean, there's even conspiracies that go as far as saying that like every single rock star that died from like an overdose was basically led there by some kind of MK ultra, you know, assassination. I mean, there's people who go that far with it. So, well, um, the, well there's 149 sub projects of this program, and so you really have to ask yourself what were, <laughs> what were these, and was a whole sub project. I, I mean, of course, there were sub projects that were directed at political figures. Uh, there's even speculation of Sirhan Sirhan um, yeah. being mind controlled through one of these sub programs. There's even speculation of the Unabomber Ted Kaczynski being part of one of these programs, um, the Marilyn Manson murder spree being uh, facilitated by an MK Ultra spin-off program. Uh, it, it, there's a lot of threads to unravel there that get really dark. There are, yeah. And I think that, you know, you can go in a lot of different directions with that, even just with the Manson murders. I mean, there is some evidence to suggest that you know, not just that it was used as a symbol to sort of like chastise the entire hippie movement, but that he might have even been like allowed to happen and then like even encouraged to do what he was doing by like feds, which is a crazy thing to, you know, to go, you know, could go down that rabbit hole, but there's evidence to support it. I mean, but what's really interesting and just like very clear that's not, you know, doesn't get wacky sounding to people is just something that I think just cuts through a lot of that stuff, which I was shocking to me to learn is that someone, as seemingly innocuous as Gordon Wasson, um, who is who is made famous for uh, basically popularizing psilocybin mushrooms. There was a Life magazine article that came out called Seeking the Mu- Magic Mushroom in 1957, uh, written by him, which basically introduced the concept of you know psilocybin mushrooms to the American masses. Um, and when this article came out, he actually thanks um, in the article – uh, um, a foundation called the Geischkitker Fund for Medical Research. And he credits this foundation in the Life magazine article. Now, this is what, uh, according to people, some researchers, he did not realize that 
the Geisiker <laughs> Fund for Medical Research was the CIA. Like it literally was a CIA cutout. It wasn't just CIA funded or backed. It was, a, it was an actual CIA cutout in the form of a fake foundation. And his actual entire expedition uh, apparently at first was funded by MKUltra subproject 58. And this was revealed by a guy named John Marks um, on documents gotten in a Freedom of Information um, request. So this is just something that, you know, I, I guess to me is a little bit surprising to learn because it does seem like it's not just like MKUltra was just LSD and just trying to, you know, experiment on people, either volunteers or, or soldiers without being known what they're given it was actually like involving like psychedelics as a whole, you know, it wasn't BZ wasn't a fluke. It, they were, they were dealing with mushrooms too, apparently. Well, this um, is, I guess it's not that hard to be believe because this was like when Operation Paperclip was being integrated into the U S like there was like literal Nazi scientists coming over here and God knows what they were doing. Like, I mean, there is a whole spinoff conspiracy about Wasson and his ties to that like Operation Paperclip and the fact that he actually knew that he was working for the CIA. And I don't know what the truth is about that. But yeah, I mean, Robbie, all there were so many dozens and dozens of these institutions and front groups that were directly funding psychedelic research and expeditions like this. Yeah. So it raises the question, you know, if it's like it starts to raise the question, at least if if this is basically how a lot of this stuff got injected with energy was from the cia the u.s government sort of sort of covertly doing these things i mean very influential things especially in the case of gordon watson um you know how much of this is sort of uh, the project of the cia you know the the later the the iterations of the hippie movement i mean the beatnik movement seemed like in a way it was like kind of a, in some ways more subversive than the hippie movement um and but they they were also dabbling around with you know psychedelics like people like Burroughs and and you know, those more famous beatniks would write about psychedelics but it was for the most part um, it seemed disconnected from the stuff we're talking about like it wasn't like you know the academic explosion of psychedelics hadn't happened yet but as we talked about in our episode Abby I mean even that the beginnings of that were also subsidized uh, by the CIA's MK Ultra project. Um, specifically at um, Harvard and uh, what, what was Princeton. That? Yeah, sorry, um, Princeton. No, absolutely. I want. I let's get into that next, but let's wrap up um, just how heinous and appalling MK Ultra in terms of like the sinister, dark experimentation of unwitting subjects was because. You know, this and who knows even if this was just like on paper, they were like, we we're trying to find a truth serum. Like, I think that these people were so sick, like they were literal Nazis, right? Being integrated with this. Like, I think that they were just so maniacal that they just wanted to just do this. Um, <laughs> like, so they wanted to just blast people's minds apart, especially that getting to test experiment on the soldiers that just defeated them in a war. You know, yeah. they get recruited from Germany like, oh, we can just fuck with the American soldiers that just beat us <laughs> or not. Beat, well, they didn't. I mean, it was the Soviet Union that beat them, but the U.S. was you know, part of. Yeah, no, lands. good point. The fact that they were using these poor soldiers is like guinea pigs. I mean, so many instances of this over you know, the last century of like literally just, you know, and, the, and my brother said lethal compounds, sarin gas, mustard gas. Um, they were doing this kind of stuff to prisoners 
dosing them, when you say, Robbie, like dosing someone who didn't know that they were being dosed with LSD, we're talking about like 10 highly concentrated doses of LSD for, according to Lexington, Kentucky, in one prison, doses like that every single day for 77 days straight, locking prisoners in a padded room. Oh, my God. That is, I mean, that is absolutely barbaric. I mean, at least... The soldiers with some uh, some level of dignity, I suppose, even though a lot of the stuff they did also sounds horrific and Nazi-like. Um, but I don't want to the boysify what we're talking about because even if there were people from the Nazi government like Operation Paperclip operating in this space, <laughs> the people that are the most chilling to me, the people who said and acted the most disturbing and Nazi-like are – you know, straight up these, these Americans, you know, like, uh, like what's his face that I just mentioned, like James Ketchum. I mean, I do really recommend people. This is only one aspect of MK ultra Edgewood, but I do recommend people watch it's on YouTube, bad trip to Edgewood. It is, it's a fascinating documentary and it's just filled with accounts from these soldiers, basically talking about how much they were completely unprepared for like the the craziest experiences of their entire life. Oh no, I didn't want to deboys. If I, 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 this is American. The boysify it, yeah, <laughs> no, because the boys. That's a whole other thread that we can talk about later of how the boys became like neutralized and like a, initially a very cutting critique about America, this Obama type figure, and then it became about Nazis. And it's like Nazis are the ultimate personification of evil. Like we can never be as evil as Nazism. And the thing is, Nazis were inspired by us. They were inspired by our treatment of Native Americans. What I was saying is that we recruited nazis to help us because we were already so nazi like we were just like let's just bring all these other nazis over to just like embolden our nazi <laughs> like culture and and experimentation like the more the merrier but yeah no this is this is american i mean gottlieb was born and bred here like he you know and he and they want to just like pass the buck off to this guy you know they want to be like oh he he had no oversight i mean come on we know how crazy alan dulles was we know exactly what was going on at the time all this was happening and we know about frank olson and that's just the tip of the iceberg this was a guy who was actually making these deadly hallucinogenic chemicals or biological weapons i guess he was working at fort diedrich uh during mk ultra he was making a bunch of these weapons that they deny using against korea And he actually, you know, because a lot of these programs weren't just based in America. Some of them were in Europe, in Asia, basically just garnering like undesirable people, whatever Mm -hmm. that means, and putting them in safe houses or whatever to just oversee these horrific experimentations on them. Heavy overdoses of drugs. And so at one point, Frank Olson was sent to go watch, you know, they were all like behind double-sided mirrors and stuff like that like watching you know operation midnight climax like hiring prostitutes to then dose the johns and then just like jerk off like watching this all happen while they're all on acid like very bizarre stuff but frank olsen actually watched him he he himself watched someone be tortured to death with a compound that he made and i guess that broke him in a good way where he was like wait this is horrific I don't want to do this anymore. I want to leave the CIA and actually I want to like talk to a reporter. He confi- he confided in one of his colleagues at the CIA that he actually wanted to go to the press. And what do you know? Uh, the next 
you know, a, a week after that, he uh, quote unquote suicide out of a 13 story window in New York City. <laughs> um, and of course, it turns out that, uh, you know, the family exhumed the body 10 years later and he had tons of bruises, clearly was beaten and thrown out the window. No lacerations from the glass they claim he like jumped through. It was very obvious what happened that he was murdered by other agents, probably at the order of Gottlieb or, or Dulles, just to completely cover up what he was about to reveal to the press. And who knows how many other people died? Robbie, we talked about um, Point Esprit, Point Saint Esprit, this French town in 1951 that experienced a random mass poisoning and like shared hallucinogenic experience that left dozens injured and five people dead that for decades people were were claiming was a psychedelic fungus from a bread at a local bakery but recently it was revealed from CIA documents that this was part of the MK Ultra field testing program and who knows how expansive this was that really like shook me to the core that they were like going over to like small European towns and just like literally like dosing the water supply or something like I don't know how they did this but can you imagine just randomly or just like walking down the street and then you just that these people describe like their body was on fire and they were just in hell <laughs> like that's how crazy this stuff got well it's just the most inhumane uh type of stuff you can imagine i mean we're i, I can't i don't remember a time when we were at war with france so anytime <laughs> something where we, you know made a whole population in a small town trip their balls off but like it it is just it is strange i mean the level of inhumanity that the u.s military was engaged in i mean all throughout that era is just shocking in so many different ways i mean going back to operation paperclip I mean, there was even um, a Japanese uh, like military human experimentation program where there's a lot of um, credibility to the idea that we brought that guy in. He was almost like the Dr. Mangala of Japan that we brought over here and sort of and, and basically took in all his data, like all that data that they were doing, uh, experimenting on like live humans and things like that was, you know, taken in by uh, the CIA. Um, so it, it is quite shocking when you just look at it all together but i mean edgewood by itself um you know it just at the side on the side they weren't just doing like drug and um you know chemical experiments on live human beings they were also doing like psychological torture experiments on soldiers right like sensory deprivation sleep deprivation experiments sometimes electroshock therapy electroshock therapy in combination with drugs so they would uh, give someone a chemical and then like not let them sleep for three days and see what they, how they behaved. I mean, these were, they did, you know, they tried all different sorts of combinations and mutate, you know, different permutations of their, their experiments. So pretty dark stuff. And, you know, most of these soldiers, I would say 99% of them had no idea what they were being given. Right. I mean, right. Um, yeah. I mean, another point about Gottlieb that's just so disturbing is that he also like some people call him the poisoner in chief because he was the one who was actually making the crazy poison darts and weapon kits to kill heads of state. Um, he had a, he's the one who created the poison darts to try to kill Castro. He actually went over with a poison kit of, I, I don't know what sort of injection or whatever. I mean, this was all supposed to be like, like totally undetected kind of stuff to kill Patrice Lumumba. Um, 
And so, yeah, I mean, it, it just shows you how maniacal he truly was and how ridiculous it is for the CIA to just be like, oh, yeah, this guy just to- totally like was just doing things on his own. Like, no, dude, this was <laughs> no, like you ordered him to do all of this. It's just so ridiculous. And then um, let's get into how how bizarre just the spawning of like Silicon Valley and the tech industry is that, you know, right now, Robbie, Silicon Valley has kind of turned psychedelics into like a tool of capitalism right there's tens of thousands of like tech employees in silicon valley microdosing encouraging microdosing it's almost become like um like what caffeine was back during like slave labor it was just like everyone drink coffee and smoke cigarettes it's like we need to be like hyper hyper productivity it's like it's so strange that this microdosing mantra is like let's all just be like hyper productive and it's kind of like um, diluting, you know, just this, the whole story that we're talking about and what actually sparked a lot of this ingenuity in the first place. Um, but it is so interesting too, like, you know, the Peter Thiels of the world and a lot of these kind of cynical operatives that are taking psychedelics, corporatizing them, and now reinserting them into society in, in a strange way where there's, you know, even like a mushroom shop in Oakland, uh, very strange stuff going on. That's, that's being pioneered by some of these tech figures today. It is very strange. I mean, you know, there's been really good developments like the decriminalization of uh, psychedelic plants in Oakland. Like in theory, you could actually open up like a mushroom um, nursery or mushroom growing kit store in Oakland now uh, to, you know, start distributing psilocybin mushrooms, or you could even, give out ayahuasca um, kits for people to, or even ayahuasca drinks. I mean, why not? It's, it's still plant-based, right? I mean, you're just basically making like a smoothie kind of thing out of like a (laughs) white, but that's all legal now. Now it's like all sort of wild West. It doesn't feel like many people are taking advantage of it yet. Um, If there, you know, there's been a lot of stuff happening underground, of course, in the Bay area forever we're here. And then it always seems like more high society kind of like stuffy stuff where it's like people, you know, this guy who's like a therapy, a therapist, like has like psychedelic parties at his house in the Hills. And, you know, and then he eventually later gets accused of like sexual assault. And so there's like all these, (laughs) there's all these like weird, you know, underground pockets in the Bay area, but the Silicon Valley aspect of it, is something relatively new in the sense that it's, it's melded with this idea of like being more productive, that somehow it has some kind of space in corporate culture now, whereas before um, the origins of Silicon Valley uh, in a lot of different ways, at least the computer aspect of Silicon Valley were heavily inspired by psychedelics. And in some cases, actually the CIA via MK ultra um, we're doing outreach in terms of trying to get like people to, uh, to like be like corporate innovators. Uh, I mean, why don't you go into that a little bit? Because that, that's something that's, um, that's quite interesting. Yeah, absolutely. So aside from, of course, the torture, like torturing people for the sake of mass torture, Gottlieb also, as well as many other key figures in the CIA wanted to study people in ordinary clinical settings willing subjects, paid subjects at these universities. So this is where we see academics turned psychedelic gurus like Timothy Leary and Ram Dass at Harvard on the East Coast 
And then on the West Coast at Stanford and Berkeley, people like Allen Ginsberg, uh, the guitarist from The Grateful Dead, um, Ken Kesey, who went on to do the infamous Can You Pass the Acid Tests, um, Timothy, well, I already said Timothy Leary, but yeah, so many other people that became these pioneers and and took the MK Ultra experimentation that they were part of and basically became these cultural icons that then went on to advocate a lot of like the rebellion that we saw with the counterculture renaissance of psychedelics. Um, but what's really interesting about what what this institution did, what the CIA did, the agency did, is set up tons of bogus front groups. Um, a lot of these hospitals and stuff didn't know that the CIA, or at least that that's what they claim, they didn't know that the CIA was behind all of this. And they didn't even really know that they were like what acid was. <laughs> they were just supplied this stuff. They were paid. They were told to pay test subjects. And then they were just told to like film things and do all these studies. And so it was not just LSD. It was a lot of other of these compounds. And, um, and there were thousands of people going through these programs for daily stipends. Uh, as you mentioned, people like Bill Gates, Steve Jobs potentially were, I mean, I don't know if they were part of these programs, but they most certainly took LSD at the time and claimed that that sparked a lot of their creativity in terms of the creation of the PC and more. Um, and, you know, even according to like people who are working for Palo Alto newspapers today, talk about how bizarre this was that um, there was a movement sponsored by the CIA with the goal of not only like breaking down the human mind and rebuilding it, but also like harnessing the human intellect and sparking like tech, <laughs> like uh, like artificial intelligence and stuff like that. Like it's so, so interesting. Um, there's a there's an organization called the International Foundation for Advanced Study and Stanford Research Institute in Menlo Park that became the center for this research. And this guy who was an electrical engineer at the time who taught physics at Stanford basically was teaching a graduate seminar called the Human Potential. Um, that And his job, like through one of these front groups, was to introduce business and thought leaders to LSD. So like what on earth is going on here? It's like so fascinating that this was actually a whole component of MKUltra that I just had no idea and and then, of course, you had the broader cultural and spiritual movement of, you know, all the former beatniks. All of a sudden, LSD just like catapulted this culture, um, you know, propelled all these like former buttoned up suburbanites to just totally like blast their mind open. Um, you know, you, you even had, like you said, there's like a conspiracy of like how far did this really go? Was this intentional for the CIA to like dilute you know, the, the anti-war fervor that was building over Vietnam and like kind of emboldened like the narcissistic aspect of how LSD, you know, kind of proliferated and like became like very like focused on kind of apolitical aspects of the culture. Um, people like Frank Zappa certainly thought that it was a, a larger conspiracy. He talks about Laurel Canyon and his song Plastic People about like how the CIA basically had a breeding ground for musicians um, whose parents were higher up military members. I don't think there's any evidence for that, but this is just part of the conspiracy about Laurel Canyon. <laughs> uh, uh, Jim Morrison's yep. dad was uh, involved in the Gulf of Tonkin. It's <laughs> <laughs> all connected, dude. I mean, it's all connected, bro. Really connected all together. I mean, there is some. You know, it is interesting that the Grateful Dead, um, 
you know, one of the guys, as you mentioned in, in our episode, was a volunteer in the MK Ultra program, and they're, you know, they were basically an engine for. They had like an LSD chemist who would follow them around and make acid basically for their concerts and like their following. I mean, so you know, I mean, I'm sure at the very least there were feds all over Grateful Dead concerts if they wanted to just like track the movement of the drug. I mean, it was just you know an open drug market. So. Um, but I mean, there's definitely people who think that they were like an engine for, you know, some kind of, uh, like um, way to lull people back to sleep out of activism or whatever, you know, I don't really know their music. I'll just say personally, their music is so boring. It's some of my least favorite music from the sixties that like, I could see maybe that somebody making that argument. Um, but, uh, yeah, I don't know. Well, even Ken Kesey, the guy who did the, you know, the Merry Pranksters, and the, <laughs> can you pass the acid test? There's a funny clip of him just being like, he's like trying to explain what the acid test is, and he can't even really explain. He's like, at first we didn't know what it was. He's like, and then we realized that it was a test. And he was like, and you either passed or you failed. And he's like talking about how, you know, these people would just go watch like these seven hour Grateful Dead concerts on huge doses of LSD, which, by the way, at the time was completely legal. That's another important facet of this is like all of this was legal. All of this was just free and open. A lot of it was the hub, of course, of the hate Ashbury scene in San Francisco. Um, and one funny clip of what he says, he's talking about the Grateful Dead, which he like hung out with all the time. And he's just like, yeah, he's like he's like you had thousands of these teenagers and stuff watching like bad music for seven hours straight and he's like and then they would just they would just get it he's like you would just have that spark and you're like did you see that did you see that it's like talking about like you have that moment where it like makes sense and it's like you're just like saying that grateful dead's like bad and like like what are you even talking about and then what's what's really funny too you know of course timothy leary is seen as like the godfather of lsd similarly to how wasson's seen as like the godfather i guess to psilocybin uh, in terms of, I guess, in, in the Western eyes. But what's so funny, Robbie, is until we did our psychedelic series, I never, like, heard Timothy Leary speak before at length. And I was shocked by how much of a total just narcissist this dude is. Like, the turn on, tune in, drop out was basically, like, the turn on was just like, well, let's just fuck everybody. <laughs> like, he was just so obsessed with having sex with everyone. Like, like he talks about how, like, you can't turn on grandma because she's dead. So, like, we, but we can try to turn on your parents. But, like, they're, they're so, like, beyond the point of being able to turn on. We just gotta, like, turn on, like, the like the young generation he's like constantly talking about how like we all need to fuck everyone we need to have as many orgasms as we can on acid it's a it's a pretty bizarre uh just stuff that he really talks about when you listen to him like unfiltered we we have a clip of him really quick i, I just want to i want people to hear from themselves just from timothy leary's own mouth let's check it out i can turn you the younger generation on to your own spiritual potentialities. But if I do so, I get in trouble with your parents. But that's not completely hopeless, because I can also teach you how to turn on your parents and gently and lovingly open them up to some of their possibilities. But the hitch here is that your parents are imprinted on grandmother and grandmother is dead, and I can't turn her on. 
he goes, really first nice. of all, the way he talks is just so off-putting. It's like very just a deliberate. It's like not stream of consciousness. It makes me not trust him. He's like very consciously like trying to articulate in a weird kind of culty way of like, you know, just the way that he talks. But then he also, Robbie, that remember that clip where he's just like, I my whole goal was to be like the most important psychedelic figure in the world or something it's like why was that your goal like i don't know it's just weird it really shows you like lsd does not it's not necessarily about like destroying your ego it's just it doesn't make you necessarily a good person or more grounded person it it can only really reflect who you are you know and i think we actually found that clip mike you want to yeah i have three things to say to young people who are growing up in a psychedelic world, turn on, tune in, and drop out. First, let me tell you about turning on. There are as many levels of consciousness as there are anatomical structures in your body. <laughs> the the, the thing sleep. is, the clip is so painfully like slow to get. It's Timothy Leary. This is the. This is the countercultural icon this is the father like the grandfather of acid this is the dude this is the guy turn on tune in drop out it's just really hard to get through him talking robbie well i mean i i mean classically you know he has that like vocal fry he sounds like he's doing like a stoner hippie thing where he's like pausing very long in between words and i guess to me one of the maybe the least cringy things about the the I guess Mo I can't say that about him specifically, but <laughs> let's just say as a warning for people, if you're entering the psychedelic world of figures and personalities and just, you know, you want to go to psychedelic parties, expect people to seem kind of swingerish or seem like they're <laughs> they are into like um free love or you know, free love is like it isn't just like people like, oh hugging and stuff. Like it also meant like orgies and like it was sort of hand in hand with this not just this era of psychedelics, but all throughout, you know, without going into McKenna too much. I mean, that's one of the things he loves to talk about is how like we need to be like uh, the bonobos were on like the African grasslands, like having like or <laughs> like running around with boners or like. I mean, it, it is. I mean, I guess I'll just say that there are certain people that psychedelics is like a you know it's a really strong I guess aphrodisiac is one way to put it, and for other people it's not, and so like that's some people's like experiences. That's what they want to do on psychedelics. Other people don't want to do that or not in the mood at all. So it's like, I mean, yeah, it is very cringy to hear Timothy Leary talking like that. Um, and you know, he probably got tons of ass cause he was like the most famous, like <laughs> guy at the time. So like, that's also cringy, but then, I mean, then his whole history of like, he already had, a, you know, was, was sort of uplifted by, um, MK Ultra funding, you know, through the university they came from, and then he ended up becoming basically an informant when he got arrested. He got he got popped, and uh, that was when his actual colleagues were like, "Yeah, fuck this guy! Like this guy's a fucking you know piece of shit." <laughs> he sold this out. Um, so there was like a turn in his career, but somehow he maintained sort of his like esteem over the years i mean he lived until i think he was like into maybe his late 70s um he even like met terrence mckenna and stuff so but yeah there was like a time period where he was a straight up informant mm -hmm. and it was on record so there's like no question that he was basically a fed at one time and and he and a lot of people basically you know said f this guy 
people very close to him. Even his own son, yeah. And then we, I think we got some feedback from someone who said that they knew him personally that disagreed with us and said that they tried to frame him as, you know, this who like a fed is i don't know how you could frame someone as a fed if they're an informant they're an informant right and and we know that based on what everyone came out and said what he testified against the weather underground and all and all of that so yeah there's a lot of a lot of sad stuff about timothy leary i wish that i was more appealed to you know i encourage people to like listen to this lecture he gives like an hour long like lecture sounds like he's like in a bunker like giving him his like end all you know here's what i think should happen with the movement and all this and it's just not it's not that inspiring let's just say i'm much more inspired and compelled by someone like terence mckenna um which we have an entire episode about in our psychedelic series let's get into one of these interesting figures robbie that you actually know and that knew excuse me before he passed away this was the number nine employee at microsoft <laughs> who actually, you know, after the prohibition of psychedelics, this went un completely underground. Um, you had Nixon using Timothy Leary as the scapegoat to just blast drugs as like public enemy number one. It was quite devastating how it wasn't just LSD that became criminalized heavily and pushed underground, but then subsequently MDMA and, um, and, I, and whatever else was out there. But... You know, then you had kind of the underground scene in rave culture and, you know, speculation that we go over also in our series that potentially the DEA was destroying the MDMA supply by by um, toxifying it with DXM, not toxifying yeah. it, but I mean, making it DXM. So like none of the MDMA was really real. So then it can just kind of generate their fear campaign about how MDMA is not what you think it is and it was just all of the stuff going on and that's why it was so incredible to see this really revered pioneer in the tech industry that was so close to microsoft in fact one of the founding employees that kept this stuff alive and was actually investing huge financial sums to uplift organizations like airwid which people i'm sure know about it's the ultimate database of all drug compounds that you can check out online it has trip reports it has basically everything you need to know and stuff like dance safe the organization that tested the pills that you would get at raves to make sure that they were safe and that they were pure mdma so this guy was such a fundamental and kind of underrated and underreported figure to keep the interest and importance of the psychedelic community alive and hope alive for a lot of these people who are pushed underground and you <laughs> amazingly enough robbie you actually met him you went to his home at some of these dinner parties that they were having i mean just i guess just walk us through like how <laughs> how the fuck that happened <laughs> yeah well it was really surreal i mean like i just for me personally when i first got into or interested in psychedelic drugs um i was mostly you know plugged into finding out about like underground music or underground bands and things like on mostly like internet forums at the time. And at the time this was the late nineties. Um, the only forums on the internet, they weren't on websites yet. They were on what is called Usenet and Usenet actually predates the web. 
Um, there were Usenet postings going back as far as I believe the late 1970s that you were still able to look up until Google basically nuked their entire database of Usenet archives, which is a huge loss. Like when I found out this happened, I was just like devastated because this is like an entire era of the internet that's basically been like erased. Um, and it's, and it's, again, it's pre-web real people having discussions on all sorts of adult, you know, weird subculture forums, anything, you name it. I mean, there was a ton of forums for anything. And I don't even really know how people created these forums. Like how did, it's kind of a mystery to me, but there was one called rec.drugs.psychedelics where, and there was also alt.drugs.psychedelics. And in both forums, there was a guy who would post um, pretty much, you know, three, four times a day, at least named Bob Wallace. And most of the stuff he would post would basically made him the most expert person in the forum to the point where he was in there almost just to help people and to give them advice. There would be like, even sometimes like young kids in high school that seemed like they were like 18, 19 being like, you know, I got this drug and this drug. Is it safe to take them together? He would respond and be like, actually, no, it's not. Here's why. Um, and, he would spend a ton of his own time doing this. And at first I didn't really know who this guy was. I just remember thinking, Oh, this is cool that there's actually like a knowledgeable seeming person in here. He's not just like some druggie. I didn't, you know, I didn't really know that there was like a, an aspect of psychedelic drug connoisseurs who were like very trying to get as knowledgeable as possible. Um, and this is what this form kind of represented, you know, there'd be the occasional crazy troll or whatever, but Bob Wallace was the guy. And, you know, it then became obvious to me, oh, this guy, um, he's kind of rich and he's got like uh, some notoriety because he used to, I guess, work at Microsoft. And then I found out he was the ninth, you know, found, not founder, but ninth employee at the original company, Microsoft. He personally knew Bill Gates. He was actually friends with him um, somehow back in the day. Uh, he's actually portrayed, I believe, in a scene in this made-for-TV movie called Pirates of Silicon Valley when Bill Gates steals a tractor at a construction site and, like, crashes it. Um, apparently, uh, Bob Wallace was the one who was there with him, but in the movie, it's just credited as, like, man with beard number one or something, like, on the on the credits. So Bob, even though Bob Wallace was founder number one, he's not been, like, really talked about at, in, like, any of the Microsoft history and I think part of that reason is he left really early in the 1980s. Artie was a multimillionaire by then, uh, based on Microsoft's status, and also because of what he chose to do after um, his exit from the computer industry. And in between getting involved in psychedelics, he was also involved in a really famous computer program called, um, I believe it was called PC Write, and it's a it was basically like one of the most big word processing programs for a really long time, like throughout the 1980s. And he eventually made it shareware. And he also popularized that concept. And he decided to dissolve the company and move on to just entirely devoting the rest of his life to research and investment into psychedelic drugs. Um, at first it was just psychedelic plants. And then he just sort of moved across the whole spectrum and, in in reality, he lifted up some of the most important influential institutions in the 90s when they had this sort of resurgence in psychedelic drugs that was sort of coming out the tales of rave culture. And I don't know, you know, where places like Maps would be, where places like Arrowhead would be, Dance Safe would be, where just like the education would be in terms of people having like 
good information about psychedelics and the taboo being lifted to the extent that it has been in, in this country if it wasn't for Bob Wallace. I mean, that's how big of a impact that he had. Well, yeah, Arrowwood was like about to shut down because they couldn't handle their servers anymore. And who knows where it would be? I mean, Bob Wallace really stepped in to keep these institutions alive. And we don't know where we would be in terms of even the research or decriminalization efforts if it was not for this man. And it's interesting that he's not really a household name, um, I guess because a lot of this stuff is still underground, especially the history of it, you know, the waves that we've covered on our series. But how did you how did you go from just like being kind of a trolley punk kid who was interested in psychedelics on these servers to being at Bob Wallace's house printing out, you know, hundreds of pages of fucking books on his computer in his like living room? Meanwhile, you had Earth and Fire fucking from Irwid in the next room and then, you know, subsequently being in Al- Sasha Shulgin's crazy laboratory in san francisco like you had some pretty crazy experiences robbie yeah and i forgot to tell the part that there were people like like people much older than i was at the time skinny dipping in the pool like (laughs) having orgies outside not not having orgies but (laughs) turning on (laughs) i'm Um, just joking so i was like i you know i was like in my er very early 20s so um just seeing like people who are like in their you know late 40s from let's say 50s to 60s skinny dipping in a pool was was pretty jarring but you know they're comfortable it's great, it's great. um so the way yeah, i went just here that's great <laughs> the way i went from being on the internet forum to to actually getting to meet him personally was just randomly um i got contacted by well my friend i should say got contacted by just a random person on the forum who wanted to meet up with my friend. My friend said some things about knowing, you know, how easy it was to get LSD in the Bay area. This guy is like, Hey, let's meet up. Um, they eventually met up. I thought it might've been some kind of entrapment thing at first because I was like, you know, this guy seems like he wants to get drugs. I was like a little bit paranoid about the whole thing, but it turned out that this guy, um, happened to know, uh, all these like people that were not just on the forum, like Bob Wallace, but like, he even knew like Alexander Shulgin. Um, he knew all these like Bay Area psychedelic, you know, figures that were like name name recognition. And I at first I thought it was bullshit. I didn't. I it was kind of hard for me to believe it. But then eventually, you know, my friends like, hey, we're we get a chance to go over, you know, do one of these Friday night dinners. There's these like monthly dinners where like all the psychedelic figures go and like hang out and talk. And I was like, okay, let's go. So we went and there was Alexander Shulgin and his wife. And um, I don't know if I recognize anybody at the first one, but I think by the second or third one that I went to, it was like, Oh yeah. Like this one's at Bob Wallace's house. Like let's, you know, we're on our way to his house. And I was like, Oh shit. Like I'm going to get to meet like Bob Wallace, this guy that like, you know, his almost like this like shadow influencer um, in the psychedelic scene. And I guess, you know, at that time I wasn't really political. I wasn't like, you know, left or, or like, radical politically so like even if he was still like a huge like i say if he was like a silicon valley billionaire i probably wouldn't have had like any like animosity about that (laughs) but like i was starting to think you know would i have animosity about the fact that he's like a a silicon valley millionaire now where i'm not where i am and i'm you know the where he was and how long he had sort of just cashed out 
in that early, you know, era of Silicon Valley, I, I feel like I wouldn't have because it's probably like the most forgivable type of like Silicon Valley rich guy imaginable. Right. Someone, I guess uh, like the like MySpace Tom is he one of those? He just like cashed out MySpace and just <laughs> retired, and then just poured all of his money into like psychedelic research. Is like, <laughs> Did he? Oh yeah, no. yeah. No, wait, that... the MySpace? Guy? No. Oh. I thought there was a, a contemporary comparison, but I'm wrong. <laughs> Yeah, Bob Wallace was uh he was it was awesome to go over his house and just like get to chit chat with him and he was definitely like shy and a little cagey around me because I was I was really young I mean I was like in my er- very early twenties you know probably the youngest person at this party um I I was like oh yeah I'm that guy on the forum and I don't remember what I said <laughs> on the forum but I said something really crazy one time and I was like worried that he knew what I posted so you know but he's there being really polite to us in his house and. He had a really cool library where, you know, it was filled with books on psychedelic drugs where there was like a photocopy machine in the library where he just encouraged people to go in there and make copies of stuff that they that they thought was cool. And I did. I took like a huge advantage of it. I made, you know, like you said, like 100, 100 photocopies. <laughs> um, but I mean, I just think in general, um, his, yeah, just his his presence in the scene was sort of almost underground like he it didn't seem like he wanted name recognition even though people knew and would talk about that he was funding these things um but i mean i guess the tragic thing is he is he did die very very young i mean way too young um and that's probably part of why that people don't really talk about him today i mean the the time period i'm talking about right now i mean he really only lived maybe five years more uh beyond this time period which was sort of like the late 90s he, he died in I think I I want to say 2003. So it's really sad. Yeah, it's really sad. Um, but his legacy lives on through these institutions that are doing really groundbreaking work today. That are really on the front lines of the decriminalization and testing of psilocybin, of LSD, of ketamine to potentially cure—not cure, but treat—you know—illnesses, uh, depression, PTSD. It, it goes on and on and on. Um, Robbie, we have a whole episode, not only, of course, that goes far beyond what you're talking about with Bob Wallace, but really just fascinating insight about these Friday night dinners and the figures that you met. We're about to do an episode actually recording tomorrow about Alexander Sasha Shulgin, the godfather of ecstasy, who I was really surprised to learn that MDMA was actually synthesized in like the early 1900s by a German chemist and they just had no idea what it was used for. And the only reason that Shulgin even knew about it was because every patented drug by Germany was handed over after World War II. And during the Cold War, the Pentagon like re-examined the potential for national defense. And that Shulgin working at like Dow, like was working for Dow Chemical and did all this crazy shit for Dow Chemical was apparently trying to convince Dow to <laughs> take on a whole subsect of their program of like psychedelic research, including all of the different compounds that were offshoots of MDMA, you know, to, LSD mixed with MDMA compounds, 2CT, 2CB, 2CI. Really interesting stuff. We're going to go into all of that next. We're also going to have a whole episode about kind of the colonial nature of this giant, um, ayahuasca tourism industry that has completely exploded you know and silicon valley i think is part of that generation of 
the ayahuasca tourism stuff, you know, injecting employees all over Silicon Valley into Burning Man, kind of making that not as cool anymore. But yeah, I mean, just this kind of bizarre notion that we have to go to like the Amazon to do ayahuasca when, you know, we talk about figures like Jonathan Ott, who there's a pill called pharmawasca that you could just do it here. Man up, take the pharmawasca pill and have that full experience right here. But um, Robbie, what else do you want people to take away from our series because there's a lot of callers on the line and I want to definitely get to them that I've been waiting patiently since the beginning that I that I think that we should take calls from. But, you know, there's the whole Israeli connection to the art student conspiracy. You, you go, go far into that. Do you want to touch upon just how weird that is? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I kind of I wanted to get deeper into this. Yeah. With to hear from someone personally. So if someone's out there listening who lived in Israel or had experience, you know, growing up in Israel in the 1990s, like during the rave era and remembers like going to psychedelic uh, themed raves or like was involved in the rave scene out there. I want to hear about it because my impression of it is that it was like one of the most psychedelic heavy like countries in the world, like in the 1990s. Um, And there is a lot of evidence that, you know, seemingly that not just the Mossad, but like people in the Israeli government itself were, involved and even completely outed um in in terms of being involved in the ecstasy trade now not manufacturing the uh, pills actually uh, most of that was manufactured in places like the netherlands or even in eastern europe later on but for some reason israel became this like hub for the trade routes of mdma distribution all over the world that even became not too uncommon for uh, Orthodox Jews who were like drug mules to be carrying ecstasy. There's actually a movie with Jesse Eisenberg, um, and I forget the title of it. I think it was actually made by the guy who made like Uncut Gems, like before he got like more popular, more clout. He made like a movie about like two rabbis like smuggling e. Um, wow. This is this is actually something that's that happened so many times. It's it's very it was very common, and um, in uh, in the you know the the episode we talk about. Uh, the Israeli connection. There's an even stranger connection where, you know, it even has some weird connections to 9-11 where there's these Israeli art students that the DEA talks about in that memo, up to 200 of them operating, pretending to be these so-called Israeli art students from a university that did not exist, selling art that was apparently just given to them for some kind of cover story where they were like obsessively going around to like DEA facilities. They were like basically harassing at times uh, DEA personnel um, and doing really like burnt, like imagine like burn after reading. But if the plot was a bunch of Israeli spies here in this country, like hundreds of them pretending to be art students and then just like trying to harass DEA agents, but in the style of a Cohen brother, <laughs> that's basically what this is. And a lot, the DEA says in their own memo that we have evidence to believe this has something to do with like ecstasy trade because like some of the people we've caught have also previous um, convictions or a criminal record of being involved in E or they are also um, in communication with people who are involved in E. And the DEA even goes further than that in, in the memo and says that actual drug operations, sting operations that they had ready to go were blown they believe by an insider Israeli company called Amdocs that was basically like a front for Israeli intelligence that somehow um, the Israeli government like company, like had a cutout company called Amdocs that was actually 
monitoring a phone records here in the u.s and it like gave information to the actual drug dealers themselves for them to like get out of the location before the dea was would do raids and this happened enough times where it was a pattern where it was like what's the connection here well the connection is amdocs and these people are like is like israeli drug dealers and it's and and so there's all that's a very bizarre rabbit hole that you know we could do a whole mini series just on this because it's like it's so interesting and strange and inconclusive too but we interviewed a guy named emmanuel spherios who was the founder of dancesafe.org who was actually uh, a guy who openly got visited by the israeli art students and he wasn't you know emmanuel wasn't dea he's not in law enforcement but for some reason the israeli art students also came to his location which was an undisclosed location this was like kind of a weird back office that was doing the testing of these pills right it was still very brazen and like in, you know, rubbing it in the face of law enforcement. So, yeah, it's like in the 90s, imagine being involved in Dance Safe. Like you're, the DEA and now these other agencies are not happy with this. It's, you know, it's gray area illegal. So these guys just show up one day. I mean, it's he Selling thought they art. were. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then when he had read something like years later about the Israeli art students thing, and I think it might have been in Salon, he was like, "That those were the guys. Like, they weren't. Those were exactly who visited me." It's so it creepy. Like, yeah. I mean, you do a whole deep dive on the Israeli art students specifically. This is like separate from kind of the MDMA ecstasy trade. I'm I'm not sure if that's actually integrated in the original story that you did for Media Roots Radio, but I would encourage people to check it out because it's just, it is just such a fascinating chapter that is completely unknown. Yeah, I mean, the only other thing I think that would, you know, that I wanted to give people, um, you know, just to take away from this, at least our episodes coming out, is that there was like a in, huge open season, like legal drug market online, not like through the deep web, not through cryptocurrency, all domestic, like retailers that would sell pure chemical, psych- like powerful psychedelic compounds like derivatives of 2CB, like you were saying, 2CT7, these Shulgin inventions. And, you know, we're going to spend some time talking about that because that's a whole weird Wild West era of the Internet in the 2000s. I don't think most people are, are aware of that, you know, you could, if you had the resources and you had a scale and you knew what you were doing, you could be like an exotic, crazy drug dealer all of a sudden with no social skills whatsoever, just buy things <laughs> on the Internet. Um, but... I mean, the, uh, the thing about ayahuasca I want to leave people with is that it's not just that there's sort of like a colonial footprint in these areas where, you know, American tourists are going down to get their souls cleansed through ayahuasca. It's also that the ayahuasca, you know, basically racket itself is only run or dominated by two specific groups that are essentially cults. And one of them is does have roots to an indigenous group, but it's only been around since like, the 1930s so so it's not both groups are not um you know there's no like ancient you know uh lineage that goes back or anything so in a way it's just sort of like arbitrary two different groups one of them is called santo daimi that that took over this thing and created like a tourism industry out of it and encouraged it and i i think there's a, there's a lot of problematic things about them specifically um, and, you know, there maybe is a right way to do it. Like if you not not the whole tourism thing, but if you actually wanted to work with a shaman, you know, there probably is a better way to do that. 
Um, and I think that these two cults sort of dominated and have shaped the way that it's been done in a, in a harmful way. Right. Um, I didn't want – I think that we're all really curious about this. It is just like overall I think it's problematic because of what you're talking about and also just um, the fact that it does leave the, that colonial footprint and it is kind of harmful overall. But I, I didn't want to like individualize it and be like, you know, if you are seeking those – those experiences out then there's something wrong with you of course not and i know several people have done that and i also know tons of people who have done it here in la there are people who are the shaman type figures who can guide you through those experiences locally you don't have to spend thousands of dollars going to the amazonian jungle and doing you know where you go through the whole well maybe that is the same ritual like like vomiting like purging your entire bowels out um it just sounds like slightly unappealing to me i would much rather take just a pill <laughs> version of that which is something that jonathan ott is just like you do not have to go through this i guess that is part of like the whole you know you're trying to get to the roots of like what the the raw spirituality is and like i think some people like that component of it it doesn't necessarily appeal to me but i i get it um well, you know, yeah aspect of it is probably maybe what it turns me off the most of a lot of the, even the therapy psychedelic stuff that's becoming increasingly trendy, at least out here. I don't know about where you are, but it's, it's alarming to me almost like how many therapists suddenly want to start doing it. It's like, I don't know, this is a huge responsibility. You know, it's, it's, it's a big deal to be in a position to administer even just like LSD to someone and, and do therapy on them for, I don't know, eight hours or whatever. So I, I do tend to think just lean towards the idea that I think the best setting and set to do psychedelics in is like do it around people that you love or that you're close to and that you're very comfortable with. Like, cause it, it, especially if you're not used to these experiences, you want to be in a comfortable environment, right? In the jungle in the middle of nowhere is going to be really intense. Even if you're not on psychedelics. Right. And we know from our friend Yasha that he was like forced to like be with the group. Like he couldn't even go off with his wife in their yeah. own space. And so it was like very strange kind of cult and reinforcement where it was like, you have to be here, like vomiting in these buckets in front of all these people. Like you cannot go out and just like be with your wife in bed. Well, you know, we were, uh, we were just talking about that film on our last podcast with the, the fungi uh, expert about that fantastic fungi documentary uh -huh, on Netflix uh -huh. and like how he had some critiques of it. But one of the parts where they show like psychedelic therapy, like you're talking about, it was um, I, people who were like ha terminally ill. And so it was using psych, you know, using mm -hmm. psilocybin on people who are terminally ill with a therapist. But like Robbie, like what the way that it, I don't know if you saw that, but the way it showed it was like a guy who had never tripped before, who's terminally ill. And the way that they do the therapy is you just lay on a couch with a big and put on a blind fold and headphones and then just hold the therapist's hands and lay there through the whole trip and i was like that looks fucking horrible like i, <laughs> I would not be having a good feeling if i'm just like in the dark headphones on headphones not with music on but like with to block out sound so you're just in like a sensory deprivation thing and then just like some random therapist that you don't even know just like is there like holding your hand i'd be like uh so yeah there's <laughs> definitely probably not fully ironed out how to properly do uh therapy with well it's a gray it's definitely a gray area happening right now and and i do have to say that i do have a former close friend of mine who did have a psychotic break that was facilitated by one of these so-called therapists that was encouraging i don't know how high of a dose of psilocybin plus ketamine plus i don't know what else but it was pretty severe um 
And so, yeah, it is problematic. And I think that, you know, we tend to kind of have this utopian vision of psychedelics and stuff like that, especially when we're looking at people like Terrence McKenna and the hero dose and stuff. But it's different for everyone. <clears throat> and it really, you know, it it's not for everyone. You know, and everyone has a different experience and everyone can react completely differently. So just tread lightly and, and stay safe out there and, you know. Yeah, I think the trauma, the one thing that's probably common for a lot of people in psychedelics is that if you have like buried trauma or suppressed trauma um, and it's not resolved, like that's probably going to come out It's in some form when you're on psychedelics. And it's like, how well can you handle that? Does it get resolved by the end enough for it to not be worse by the end? Because it's this whole idea that there's all these studies that psychedelics, you know, can do a have a really positive effect on depression and lessen it for a lot of people i tend to believe those studies overall but like what's the granularity of them like how many people are walking out of those studies sometimes being like you know this was this i I thought at first maybe this was making me feel less depressed but now i'm more depressed i mean there's probably there has to be some people like that so it, it doesn't work the same for everyone yeah and i think that's just important to to you know know especially if you're going into this for the first time Absolutely. Um, we're about to take calls, but I just want to remind people that, um, you know, Nixon, Nixon's war on drugs, of course, like, and then Reagan doubling down later on the war on drugs. And then the DEA's just crackdown on all of these compounds. And then, of course, just breeding the mass incarceration crisis, crack cocaine, um, you know, being you know we know about the drug running and like the contras and all of this stuff and it's just so disturbing that the government used drugs and demonized them so hard and that's pretty much like underpins our mass incarceration crisis in this country and it you know all of these people who are former felons because of like just really small like drug you know facilitating things like marijuana and stuff like that and it's just so sad like these people can't vote um and then you have kind of the the upper class kind of elite circles now like everywhere you fucking go in la there's just marijuana billboards everywhere there's there's cannabis clubs everywhere and it's just like very strange that we have not as a society dealt with that um giant contradiction yet and just the racial component of it is very disturbing too so that continues today at the same time as this decriminalization and post-prohibition era, there's still this very dark component of the war on drugs that continues and that exists um, with incarcerated people. And that really has to be addressed um, before we can move forward as a society. Yeah. And just to circle back to something I was thinking about that you guys mentioned it, how weird it is that the government was like, involved you know their lsd support of like corporate america and like the tech industry like back a while ago like when the tech industry was getting started and like why would that be and it's probably for the same reason that there's a micro doking dosing in the tech industry now because it's all about we got to be like the most creative think of the biggest idea so we could be still be on top of the world and technology and capitalism and, and you know like the cia part of the cia's interest is not just to like destroy other countries that are competitors but to be the top country itself for capitalism to thrive like that is very much in the interest of the cia and the u.s government and for it to be supporting the use of LSD in 
corporate America and the tech industry. So it could be creative at a time when the U.S. was very much competing with the Soviet Union as a major economy. And in fact, it makes a lot of sense that there is that influence, the government involvement in the tech industry and LSD back then, because that was like the main reason that the U.S. was able to really or that the Soviet Union was kind of left behind technology. It was over computers. And there was a point like in, you know, in the 80s when like when the U.S. had pretty much switched over to using computers and digitization to do like to run a country, the Soviet Union was still like using like paper and like calculators and stuff like imagine how administratively like tough that would be. And so, uh, yeah, I mean, it has a, it has a legacy in, in different ways, too. But let's get to some calls. Uh, you know the rules. When you get on the line, you're going to be automatically muted. And so make sure to take yourself off mute. We have a lot of callers on the line. We got about 10. So try to keep your comments and questions uh, a little short so we can make sure to try to get to everyone. Yeah, and, and we're going to we're just going to give the, you know, we're not going to keep you on, so just say what you want to say, and then we'll uh, we'll take it, take the comments off off air. <laughs> Brady, What's up, my dudes? where are you calling from? I am uh, from Texas, um, hey, and I am gonna yeah, I'm gonna keep it quick, and so we can get to everyone and just drop a book called Chaos: Charles Manson, the CIA, and the Secret History of the '60s by Tom O'Neill. Super cool. I mean, it's the book starts about Charles Manson and the second half of the book is all about the webs of the CIA and their involvement with the Manson murders and helter skelter, the culture war they were trying to start back then, which is still relevant today. And then another book I would drop is The Immortality Key by Brian Murarescu. And it's about how Jesus and a lot of early Christians were actually practicing uh, psychedelic rituals and how psychedelics have always been a cornerstone of sensual intelligence going back thousands of years to the ancient rabbis, as a matter of fact. Um, Super interesting book. And I think that Hamilton Morris of Hamilton's Pharmacopoeia would have like a lot of really interesting, probably little stories about this. If you guys can get in touch with him, that'd be totally rad. And that's it. Thanks, man. Um, I, I actually just found out recently, this is kind of a, a shocking, I mean, it's not shocking, I guess it's just a funny coincidence, is I, someone on Twitter told me um, that Hamilton Morris is Errol Morris's son. And I was like, oh, like that's pretty crazy, but makes sense. Um, do you, Have you guys seen his show, Mike or Abby? Hamilton Morris? No. Oh, it's like the, it's it's actually probably one of the best oh shows. Oh my God. By, um, and uh, the, the thing about Jesus I don't know much about that. I know like, you know, there's been, I, the only books I've read in that vein and, and that I could like vouch for personally is the book. It's not about Christianity, but it is about uh, Buddhism. It's called the secret drugs of Buddhism by a guy named Mike Crowley. And that book, um, I find lots of it very credible. I don't know if I believe all of it, but it makes a very good argument for basically saying that there was like secret or, you know, fringe like psilocybin mushroom use that went all the way back to the very earliest iterations of buddhism and you know lots of symbolism indicates that i mean even just the the idea of um a parasol that you see appear in all these old buddhist paintings um resembles in a lot of ways like a psilocybin mushroom with the gills in on the inside and the way the stem looks is almost not like a hand a straight handle a lot of time it's like a curvy little stick um, that it's like, why would they make the stick so curvy? It's like, that's not what, you know, umbrellas used to look like. So there's a lot of like interesting think conclusions that he draws in that book that I, that I think are really compelling, um, that I think people should check out. 
Uh, and another guy, actually, I don't know if you've heard of this um, either, the P.D. Newman um, theories about um, the free, Freemasonic rituals that go back that actually have a documentation of ingesting DMT containing plants as part of some of the these early, more obscure, esoteric Masonic rituals. And this guy's argument is that acacia, the branch that later appears as a symbol in masonry, is actually like a secret code to say that um, you know, we sort of inserted this in here, but you know, apparently this was not something almost any Freemason in the world knows about. It's just something that only, you know, a very small amount. Do. So it's always come down to this like small secret group, um, you know, kind of thing, but I'll definitely check out that, that Jesus book you recommended. And the other Charles Manson book, I've heard of that and it's been recommended to me multiple times. So I'm just, I got to get around to reading that at some point. Yeah, it sounds really interesting. I want to check those out, too. Thank you, Brady, for your call. Shelly, you're on the line. Where are you calling from? Hi, I'm calling from Arkansas. Um, hey. Hi. Um, I consider myself a communist, and I just wanted to ask you guys a couple of questions about how, and I'll try to be as fast as I can. As far as the Western left, how is it that we can reconcile um, kind of the ability for people to have the freedom to be able to engage in taking psychedelics? And reconciling that with the history of the CIA's involvement in subjugating and dominating uh, the third world that has widely tried to eradicate drug culture from their societies. And is there a danger in potentially giving in to some of the things that the CIA thought were the possibilities of LSD and other drug cultures was the hypnosis and the pacification elements of LSD and the possibilities of the implication for the Western left? Well, I'll just answer just I'll, I'll based on part of one of the things you said, which is that the sort of the idea, like there are things that even Gottlieb said about LSD that I personally agree with, you know, like the, just his phrase in a vacuum, the idea that it can unlock you know, some secrets. I mean, that's, that's definitely an experience that one can have on LSD. So there's, I mean, I think there is a danger to, you know, I think there's more of a danger of giving into just this utopian, you know, psychedelics are all good vision. Um, when it comes to some of the generalities, of what you're saying that specifically the idea of it being like, you know, how can we even, reconcile uh even being able to enjoy or you know take part in taking psychedelic drugs if the cia was this involved i mean it's a that's a really good question i think it is it is a quandary that i do think anyone doing them who is political um needs to think over um but at the same time i mean there are you know previous to lsd um i guess one of my counter arguments to that would be that like there's a rich rich history of cultures um, ingesting, you know, psychedelic drugs for all sorts of reasons going back thousands of years. So it's, so, so I guess previous to LSD, um, I would say that that's, you know, but after LSD, it gets a little more colored and it is impossible to separate, um, you know, how psychedelic drugs proliferated in our culture from the government's footprint. And it's, it's, it is too bad. Um, Yeah. That, that actually is, if I could have a follow-up question just real fast, yeah. I think that I think that's also another concern of mine whenever we talk about the rich cultural history of psychedelic drug use. That is absolutely 100% true about indigenous cultures. 
But I also think that we have developed almost a kind of Western privileged indigenous drug culture tourism that I'm very concerned about as well. That if you think about the opioid crisis in the United States, I don't know about you, but I don't know about many working class people that can afford a radical safari into (laughs) the wilderness to experience that. And I'm concerned about pushing that type of view as far as being leftist. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I completely agree with you about the whole tourism angle, especially like this idea that you can, you know, go visit a shaman and they're going to, you know, cure you for like $5,000. I mean, not only is it completely unaffordable and it becomes this sort of, you know, privileged thing that a lot of celebrities and, you know, rich people in LA end up doing. Um, it is, it is just sort of a, a weird, gross thing in general, this, that concept. I think, I mean, so, I mean, even something like Ibogaine, like if we're just talking about people who are, who are addicts, um, like Ibogaine has been shown to be like a really good um, psychedelic drug that helps cure a lot of addicts. Um, and I don't say that lightly. It's like, it's been one of the more proven things out there and it's not available in the United States. And people don't typically go to shamans, um, you know, like when they go do it in other countries. But it would be nice if that was something that was available here. So it's kind of like the way that it exists now. Yeah, it is sort of gross and and only in a lot of instances for the privileged. So there isn't like an availability of, you know, someone to be able to get Ibogaine, for example, here. Hopefully, maybe even just like with something like the decriminalization, though you know, maybe that will at least make it more widely available. I mean, maybe someone will at some point open like an Ibogaine clinic. Um, that's, you know, uh, where you, they could, they don't take payment from some people. I mean, you know, you never know. So I guess it, it's, it's such a big concept. The psychedelics are such a big thing that I think that there's a lot of positives and negatives to them, especially like the people who administer them. I mean, uh, you know, we talk about people who are culty, but I mean, a lot of these ayahuasca tours and things, for example, I think are probably more bad than good, even though people have said they've had great experiences with them. So, yeah, there's a All lot right, of thank you. That was really, really helpful. Thank you. Thanks, Shelley. I think it's a really interesting question, especially as we went over the really dark, sinister history of what the CIA did and how it introduced these substances here. And now the reinvigoration of the exploration of these substances with Silicon Valley and corporations. And it's a very strange contradiction because it is, there is a component of it that's very privileged. And at the same time, there's a lot of drugs that are very demonized. um, And there's a lot of crises happening. Um, Opioids, heroin, uh, you know, the fact that we don't, you know, like we demonize things like needle exchange programs and stuff like that. And there's, uh, fuck what of fentanyl which is also just horrific and has killed several people that i know so it's just it's very devastating and the fact that we we aren't honest about all these things and we can't kind of go into the nuances of of these contradictions i think is problematic especially when you're dealing with the explosion of marijuana and like i said just the fact that we still have so many millions of people who are incarcerated for like non-violent drug use um I, i i hope that we're entering into a territory where we can have the capacity to talk about these things honestly um, and perhaps, you know, as, as the U.S. is, is the empire, um, maybe decriminalization will go in waves now um, across, 
you know, other countries as well. But there is, like you said, this horrific component of the homogenization of like colonization, not just with the empire, um, but also like with religion, you know, and Christianity and missionaries that have basically just erased a lot of these indigenous cultures and rituals that have existed for millennia across South America, across Asia. And it's very grotesque and it's very heartbreaking, you know, and that 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 is who really has had this kind of ancient wisdom for a, a very long time. And so it's nothing new. Um, but yeah, I think that it's just it's all very complex. And like my brother said, it's a very big topic that has a lot of nuances. And I think that it just starts with just being honest about all of this. Shelly, thank you so much for your call. Ian, you're on the line. Where are you calling from? Hey, guys. Uh, good to talk to you. Good to talk to you, my friend. Where are you calling from? Um, I'm calling from the state of Washington. Sweet. And yeah, I, I was also thinking about those contradictions um, and just kind of like going back to the, I guess, the the West's origin, if you don't count mescaline in like the 1890s, like the West's origin story of psychedelics. And... It, you know, basically an enterprise on the behalf of the CIA and the U.S. Army to use these agents as ways of control, like controlling people and interrogation, extracting information and stuff. And I think like there's this kind of bifurcation of two different narrative, uh, I guess, interpretations of how that turned out. Like there is this kind of, I guess, you know, growing um narrative this dude named david mcgowan wrote a book about this and i think you know frank zappa was probably in this camp too where that the idea was that mk ultra was a success that like basically the rock and roll movement of the 1960s and the counterculture were actually sort of controlled opposition and that they were using psychedelics to fry the minds of hippies and move them away from like you know subversive or anti-war activities I, I personally think that's pretty improbable, but the, the other, like the other narrative is that it was a failed experiment that people like Ken Kesey and others were exposed to psychedelics, you know, through the U S government's kind of, you know, creepy machinations, but it, it kind of like they couldn't control it. It sort of exploded at like, and spread around the world. Like you can, um, there's a book called Storming Heaven, which is really good by Jay Stevens that kind of tra- like talks about the progression of sort of it escaping the lab and getting into like the counterculture scene and then through Silicon Valley and stuff. And, and that debate is kind of like a hot one again, because now the, the issue of can psychedelics be controlled or not is like like a pretty important one now that the role of capital and capitalism are kind of like rearing their head as like psychedelics become a little more ab- above board and, you know, legally sanctioned in some places and a potential like money making endeavor. And so there's this one belief that says you can't control psychedelics, maybe even for good or bad. And so the CIA couldn't control them and capitalism, which has managed to basically like suck the life out of everything, you know, you know, anything that's cool in the world gets co-opted by capital eventually you know are psychedelics something that can buck this or are they also going to become a tool for you know say like silicon 
valley productivity and there's there's been a lot of like kind of editorial articles in a magazine called symposia with a p that writes about kind of i mean more recently about kind of the dark side of i guess like psychedelics coming out of the shadows um with what they call the the psychedelic renaissance currently going on um especially with mdma and psilocybin but it's like i think it's kind of an unsettled question and like it's two ways of kind of looking at this origin point. Like has this all been just this op where the government has been in control the whole time, or is this is a testament to nature or chemistry, basically like breaking the mold and like liberating people. And you know, how you feel about that past seems to like indicate what you think about, you know, what's the future going to be like with a capitalist society that tries to integrate psychedelics as like agents of healing or personal growth or creativity or whatever. It's a really great point. And I, I'm really curious about where this is going to, in terms of like, you know, Peter Thiel's mushroom shop and stuff like that going on in the Bay area. But I do think, you know, I used to, I used to have the mind that like, we need to dose, well, I still think this, we need to dose everyone in the White House, we need to dose the punch bowl in Congress, and like, just, you know, everyone needs to like, dose, and then, and then they'll just be, get dosed, and then now, I I think, as I get older, I've realized that it doesn't make you better, right, like, it could actually have the reverse effect, where it could actually feed your ego, make you worse um reinforce yeah. like really bad character together it's like stronger right and so i think it's it's individual it's like mm-hmm. and the the question is like well if everyone tries it what what will that do um you know i don't know i don't know how much it reinforced the political fervor and like the revolutionary fervor of anti-capitalist sentiment in the 60s and 70s. I would like to think of it doing that. You know, I would like to think of it having been synonymous with like rejecting all these institutions and stuff like that. But at the same time, all of these baby boomers became, you know, a lot of them just became like folded into like Reaganites. And it's like, well, what the fuck happened? Like, how did we go from there to that? So I do think that as I get older, I feel like it's not as easy as that. And I do think that it can't, like, I don't think that Congress, if they're all on acid that they would come out of it and be like we need to be better like what like capitalism's bad i think it just like it would it would honestly like make a lot of these people just as bad as they already were and and sometimes worse and so that's the danger of it is that we don't know because it is so mysterious and it is such like an, it could be such like an individual experience yeah i guess we'll find out Robbie? of experiment where you can do like a you know administer lsd to a virtual population of people and, and speed up the, you know, the the timeline to see how many of these people would be hypnotized or like lulled into just like listening to like a rock concert for you know 12 hours on end straight while tripping and like what percentage of the people would turn into like subversive radicals out of like <laughs> given a certain amount of lsd i think it's i mean it probably it that's probably what makes it sort of uncontrollable is like for you know, there are probably people who would, could get lulled by some kind of swan song, like kind of thing, if the CIA wanted to set something like that up. But there would be people who would be like uncontrollable, have crazy weird ideas that would not be useful for the CIA. So it is, it is, you know, it's a very powerful tool. Um, but I mean, I guess 
I, I think that we sometimes get into this sort of more umbrella terms where we're talking about all psychedelics. I mean, there was also a period of American history where people were taking laudanum with like, um, you know, uh, deliriants like um, belladonna seeds, plus uh, large amounts of hashish consuming it all at once to basically have what we consider psychedelic experiences. And they didn't call the, the experiences psychedelic, but they weren't taking acid. They weren't even taking any tryptamines or things like that. But, um, you know, in those, you know, I, I don't know. So I guess when I think about a lot of these discussions, I'm mostly thinking about LSD, um, I suppose. But, you know, it's hard to say, but I think, yeah, it's, but I don't, I, I do not see a way to actually fold in psychedelics for real into capitalism unless there's some kind of pharmaceutical company out there or a chemist who invents forms of psychedelics that are basically like Aldous Huxley brand new world a brave new world soma where <laughs> act like a blubbering child who is like sort of controllable and like reprogrammable also kind of just like tripping out you know but you're still like just a, a goon who's like a lemming and can kind of just be you know controlled and shaped um, I, I don't think that el- that psychedelic drugs in the forms they exist now are like that. Um, there might be other drugs like that, but uh, I think that it probably would take other drug concoctions or analogs of you know existing drugs to get us somewhere that would be like this capitalist society is basically um, you know uh, not just um, afloat with psychedelics integrated into it, but it's also like a, a huge component of its success, like. That's gonna. Be, that'll be a crazy future. I mean, I don't see it as impossible, though. I mean, it's yeah. possible. If, but, if um, they rely on it's going, it's anything fucking possible, man. Seriously, if they could really map the brain and really like chart out how they can manipulate certain fields of it that we that Gottlieb had no fucking clue about back in the day, like it, it is. CIA's got to be on it. The CIA it. is already on it. Everyone's it is, working on it. They're working on it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the world's about to get pretty nuts and honestly i'm thinking anything's possible at this point yeah and uh just really quickly to ian's uh, point about like was the hippie movement an app you know like just this is just anecdotal but i know a lot of people today who are political organizers who got their start as young people during the anti-vietnam war upsurge and i think all of them i've asked none of them have ever done acid what? because well because like at that time okay probably one of two things there was so much repression at that time like uh every time you'd start a political meeting you would read a list of names of all people who were in jail or awaiting trial and it would take like the first 30 minutes of every me- meeting like everyone was getting arrested being sent to jail and so drugs was a, a very dangerous thing and the government was using drugs as a way to lock people up and stuff but also there was such an upsurge at that time that everyone pretty much thought that the a revolution was going to happen like in the next year or two so you have to imagine if you were a political activist at the time you'd be like highly serious because you'd be like oh we're going to actually we are going to overthrow the government in like a year or two and we have to like be prepared for that um but anyways ian thank you so much for your very cool. insightful and good call yeah i just want to add one quick bit and that is one of the big problems with the whole marijuana industry today is like just heavily chemical you know, oriented strains that I that are probably just poisoning the shit out of us. I have no idea what the hell is in marijuana today. I it's kind of a shame because back in the day, you can just buy it from like a local dealer who just grew it in their backyard or whatever, and it was just like, all right. I mean, it sucked like having to hang out with those people to get <laughs> weed, but at the same time, it was like it's really over the top and it's kind of like untraceable. And you know, and then you have the whole industry of like fake marijuana that's like 
I mean, drives kids nuts. You can just like get at smoke shops really easily. And it's like so unregulated that they keep changing the compounds every six months. And it's like there's this whole other dangerous side to it. But I think that it all comes down to intent. You know, for me, psychedelics, I don't use them frequently at all. And I haven't for years. But for me, they really helped unlock a lot of my creativity and intellect and insight that has helped me grow. Um, and I think that it comes and, and for me previously, you know, marijuana really helped me to like stay sane and not be as anxious. But of course, there is that kind of abusive side to it where it become very addicting and you can depend on it a lot more than you want to. So I think that with every drug, it's there can be negatives and positives and it's all about intent and abuse. And I think that, you know, it, it's a lot of people don't have the right intent going into some of these substances. And like my brother and I were saying, they can be extremely powerful. Um, yeah. Hey, go ahead, Robbie. About, um, I just don't want people to take away from this conversation that we're saying that, like, that's somehow the psychedelic drug culture that exists is inherently like a creation of the CIA. I mean, people in the West, you know, would have eventually found this stuff somehow if it wasn't for the CIA, it just happens to be that the CIA was in there from the very beginning, even funding the guy who wrote the first article on psilocybin mushrooms here, but psilocybin mushrooms have been around forever. I mean, we don't know how long humans have been consuming them, but seemingly since the very beginning of human civilization. So it, I don't want people to take away from this, that it's like, you know, that there's some kind of CIA association inherently with uh, so deciding to ingest a psychedelic chemical because there isn't. I mean, you could make the argument that LSD specifically, maybe, you know, if you're overly sensitive to that, then I'd say stay away from LSD specifically. But all these other drugs, I mean, they would have probably been exposed to the West at some point for what was for the CIA or not. Um, so I just want, you know, I want people to understand that as well. Yeah, man. And, you know, I'm glad you mentioned weed, too. I mean, it is something that can easily be abused and something that can become a hobby in and of itself. And so, you know, if you find yourself as your extracurricular activity or something you're doing with your spare time, just smoking a lot of weed when you normally would be pursuing other things, then, uh, you know, it might be a good uh, idea to cut back. And, you know, I think for a lot of people, it gets a, it's kind of considered like this cure-all for anxiety or whatever other things when it can, for a lot of people, make that stuff actually a lot worse, which you can't realize until you fully detox from it. Um, thank you again for your call. Umit, John, you're on the line. Where are you calling from? Hey, can you hear me? We can. Absolutely. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, hey, guys, uh, this is John from New Jersey. Thanks for uh, listening. Yeah, yeah, hell yeah. Yeah, man. I love the episode tonight. I agree with you guys. I think uh, especially drugs these days, I'd stay away from anything that uh, you can buy uh, from pharmaceutical companies. Um, that's just generally if you can get them locally sourced or grow them your own. Obviously, knowing the source is the best way to um, engage in those activities from my perspective. Totally. Um, I mean, but if, my just really quick. I mean, the fentanyl thing is so scary. Like, uh, if there's access to fentanyl, t like, and it's not just opiates, like cocaine apparently has tons of, like, tons of people are OD are dying from fentanyl from doing cocaine. Um, Abby mentioned she knows people recently who've died from fentanyl. I think one of those people took one pill and OD'd on fentanyl from just taking one 
uh, something that he thought was like it was a Xanax. pressed as a fake Oxycontin pill. Yeah. So it's like super dangerous. And like there, I just saw or heard this story recently where like a bunch of people like they just a bunch of bunch of bros got some coke and just like hanging out in their apartment one night and just all of them died from the fentanyl. So it's super fucking dangerous right now. Yeah, It really harkens back to the days when the CIA was pushing crack into these uh, poor neighborhoods. For some reason, I feel like the war in Afghanistan and the opioids that are available in the Middle East uh, somehow are finding them are somehow finding their way back to America. Um, I don't know. I This is just a, a tangential thought, but um, it doesn't seem like it's so coincidental. But my, uh, my thoughts tonight have to do with uh, Abby mentioned uh, the different subprojects for MKUltra. Uh, I think it's weird that anytime you read a mainstream article about MKUltra, they always mention LSD and how it didn't work as a mind control drug. Uh, and I think that's true. I don't think LSD is effective as a mind control drug, but I wanted to delve into some of the other subprojects for MKUltra that may have been successful, specifically uh, subproject 142. So MKUltra subproject 142 talked about putting electrodes into people's brains. And there was a really famous experiment done at Tulane University uh, by Robert Heath, where he basically like took a gay guy and tried to force him to have sex with a woman using this brain chip, like stimulating the pleasure area of his brain. So I guess my question tonight is, um, do you think that these MKUltra experiments have continued, just not through MKUltra, but maybe through uh, electrodes like Neuralink? I mean, there's been a lot of investment in, uh, in Neuralink and types of devices like that. And Whitney Webb wrote a great article and did a good podcast a few, a uh, few weeks ago about it. Um, I guess my question is, do you think that they're still trying to do behavioral modification on people? And do you think that they're using brain chips to do it? Jeez. I mean, when it comes to brain chip stuff, it's hard to say. I mean, the Neuralink thing, it seems like, you know, I mean, if there's a way to get in like a tiny, tiny um, incision into someone's skull and implant something while they're sleeping maybe but like the other thing you're talking about like the electrodes thing this probably seems like a more brute force older thing that i i feel like i mean i wouldn't be surprised if that that stuff is still going on on some level um but you know i tend to almost go more towards like a like the sort of the electromagnetic like resonance type like helmets that you know that can apparently stimulate aspects of the brain without having to do in any kind of invasive surgery. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if the government's tried like every single conceivable variation of that on, on human subjects and actually probably even giving people brain damage with it. I mean, it wouldn't surprise me at all. I mean, and, and, you know, I have this argument sometimes with people when it comes to like bioweapons is the U S government still making bioweapons after they sign the bioweapons convention. If you read Whitney Webb stuff, I mean, it probably wouldn't be surprised to you that they probably are making bioweapons and just calling it biodefense. So, um, you know, after these programs supposedly ended, I, I believe they're still taking place in some other form. Absolutely. And maybe not Neuralink, you know, is directly related to this, but probably some other government companies, uh, funded companies or cutouts are. Um, but I don't trust Neuralink for a second. It's definitely ominous. And Elon Musk is, um, you know, a, a psychopath so uh you know but uh, yeah i mean that's definitely interesting worth looking more into that program I, I mean if you could leave us off with that number again that you read off um i i'd like to look more into that uh i already i already uh took the next oh, caller I'll, so john's not there and just leave it in the chat if you can john 
Yeah, but I, I was just going to add that um, I definitely think that there's still experimentation going on. I mean, just the weird unsolved kind of Havana syndrome hysteria where they're claiming that it's like, you know, Cuban warfare against like diplomats and stuff. I mean, for me, it seems much more likely that our own government would be (laughs) experimenting something, some sort of electromagnetic force that's like that causes people to be incapacitated or have resonating symptoms. um, And that could be some sort of like mass experiment happening right now that's being blamed on Russia or Cuba. Um, as far as like my brother mentioned, you know, weaponized BZ, there's a lot of weird mass hallucinatory events. I don't know how you can share a hallucination with someone that is terrifying. Um, but that is also just something that I tend to think about. I know Whitney and my brother have talked about that. Like Robbie, what was it that you and Whitney were saying with that? They're like, there's like thinking of, or they're like developing a device that could like beam into your head, like a voice or something. Well, that's been around for a while as they've been yeah. able to um, create like laser based sound lasers. Yeah. That is so terrifying. I, I tested one out personally at a, at the Sega museum in like Japan in like 1999 or something. And it was, it was pretty impressive back then. Like you stand in this little dot, it tells you to stand there and the speakers like, hundreds of feet away and it's like you cannot hear anything until you put your ear directly in this little spot so um who knows what they're doing with that i don't know putting something direct like a voice directly into your head i mean that sounds a little bit too science fiction for me but who in the f knows these days i mean they're talking they're talking about ufos on the news now as if it's (laughs) normalized so who knows what they're actually like doing i i don't know it's creepy to me but in terms of drug experimentation, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if, the, you know, BZ is what we know about. I mean, what other drugs would they try to turn into like a gas? Mm-hmm. Salvia into a gas, DMT, what other kind of like breathable smoke? <sighs> Salvia gas, man, that would be the one. Yeah. I mean, Russia. I want to fuck people up. <laughs> so I don't know, man. It's, yeah, it's wild. Scary thank stuff. You for, thank you for that call. Thank you so much, John. And uh, sorry, I'd move on to the next caller so you didn't get to re-say that number again. But if you drop in the chat, we can check it out there. Rico, you're on the line. Hello, Rico. Hi, can you hear me? Yes. Absolutely. Hi, good evening from the San Francisco Bay Area in California. Oh, shit. This is Rico speaking. Uh, First of all, I wanted to thank you, Abby, for touching on the subject of uh, Timothy Leary earlier. I think anyone under 40 can see how cringe the guy actually is. <laughs> and I think, Robbie, you even used the term cringe, which is, it's important that we really embrace and accept this fact so that people don't get swooped up into his, uh, this type of um, seductive ideology. Yeah, what makes, what makes you think that, um, Rico? I'd like to hear your thoughts. Well, no, I've definitely been exposed to all of the same speeches and all of the um, he made some he made some documentary and videos of stuff that he was doing at his commune. And it all just seemed really culty and weird and uh, just deeply narcissistic, which is uh, one of the kind of darker aspects of psychedelics that they can really uh, heighten the psychopathic nature that some people have uh, if you have any kind of underlying uh, psychological condition psychedelics can aggravate said conditions so uh, that's one of the uh, things that i noticed with leary and i don't think anyone under 40 is really going to buy this tune in uh, uh, 
this whole tune in, turn on, drop out thing. I mean, that's really, this is the kind of stuff that like boomers were falling for. We have far too much <laughs> access to information nowadays to really bite down on this kind of uh, stinky kind of bait that was out there. But it was a different time back then. People didn't have access to information. Totally. DMT wasn't really available. So it's like people didn't really know how, how deep it went yet. <laughs> no, but I I wanted to talk about something more specific. I actually have a question for you guys. Uh, earlier, we were talking about the um, the Israeli art students and the whole Mossad connection and intelligence agencies connections specifically to LSD. And uh, I just came to live in the United States. I returned like about two years ago after living abroad for many years. I found myself going to a lot of psychedelic and Goa trance parties in Europe, in Asia, in South America. And the overwhelming presence of Israeli people and some specific bad actors that had intelligence agency connections written all over them was omnipresent. So I wanted to touch in on the subject again because i found it was something that's always kind of like to this day still a little bit in the back of my mind lingering a little bit bothering me um we know of the documented cia connections be, through jolly west through gottlieb through owsley the grateful dead i uh, even to uh, uh charles manson there's been so many documented connections with the cia the Mossad connection we spoke about earlier with the Israeli art students, my own personal experience interacting with some nefarious characters on a global scale. And I'm just wondering, what is their intention? Why even mess with these things? Why are they involved with it? I'm wondering, is there some kind of altruistic angle where they're trying to create a superior society by selectively opening the minds of individuals in said society? Or is it something more nefarious? I believe the Ian, a caller from uh, a few minutes ago, mentioned that there's the whole concept of controlled opposition through MK Ultra. So I wanted to take your response off the air. Uh, what do you think? Uh, why are they even? Why are they doing this? Why are they opening this Pandora's box? Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting he says that because at the beginning of this, I was like, I want to hear from people who are like in Israel or you know involved in the Israeli rave scene because one of the things I discovered. <laughs> after you know putting together all the music background music for our series is that almost all the Psy and goa trance that i was able to compile were all by israeli musicians so i didn't really it didn't really occur to me until working on these episodes that um most of the popular musicians that you hear about in this scene are israeli so it's probably you could argue it's the most israeli dominated electronic music genre um it has the most israeli representation so that alone is but to answer the, you know, his his question, just in a, the most basic way that I can, the best conclusion I can come to at this point is that, you know, maybe just the vehicle of being a traveling hippie who goes to raves all over the world or even as a DJ or a musician who goes to raves all over the world and performs is a really just good vehicle or sort of almost cover for, um, you know, some kind of intelligence operation or absolutely or and then on the other hand um what were the israeli art students doing with the da that's almost a little bit more mysterious and comical and, and burn after reading because it's like if they were here to sort of track 
the E-Trade in the United States, why would they be like so brazenly, openly harassing DA agents when it comes to the Israeli art students specifically and what they did? I tend to think maybe it was almost like a smokescreen operation designed to almost distract away from something other uh, intelligence people were doing, like who are more actually undercover um, just because of how comical it was. But, you know, I have heard this from other people. You're not the first person I've heard this from that has said that some of the sketchiest characters they knew were people who almost seemed like feds seemed like these Israeli, you know, ravers who were able just seemingly really resourceful and just at every party they would go to and stuff. So that's not, you're not the first person I've, heard something like that yeah like where do these hippies get the massive budget to fly all over the world and go to all of these uh eclectic parties you'd see the same people in south america then the following week they'd be over in europe it's almost as if they had their own funding and these were always the type of characters that were reaching out there and uh this was kind of in the pre uh inner like pre-social media age like birth of social media but they were almost like a type of influencer you know like they had uh contacts that uh, they were just too well connected the whole thing was a bit suspicious i almost wonder if it was perhaps a way that Mossad was competing with the cia to kind of have some kind of uh how do you say like a voice in the social dialogue uh, I don't know. It's interesting. And I think at the end, we have more questions than answers. But um, I would love to hear more about this. And I'll take it off the air. Well, Rico, you know, one one possible angle to this, which probably doesn't explain the entire thing, but it's probably one thing is that one of the main jobs of people who work in espionage or spies for the government is to obtain blackmail on people who work for other governments. And drugs is usually a big uh, part of that. I mean, this is why the intelligence apparatus is so involved with Epstein, because he was getting blackmail on very powerful people. So then the those agents can then go to those people and say, hey, you're going to give us some government secrets or I'm going to release this blackmail about you. And so everywhere you were like the parties you were at and different countries there were you know it's possible that there were people who worked for that country's respective government also you know partying there or the israel or the Mossad people were there like looking for people who worked in different positions of power that they could get uh information on to then uh try to get secrets government secrets out of them or at least or just catalog that blackmail I mean, that's just gathering blackmail on people who work in different positions is definitely a main job of people who work in the intelligence apparatus. So uh, if you're in, obviously those people are in the drug scene because there are people who work in government at all levels who end up, may end up in the drug scene. And if there's going to be a spy there finding out what they're doing to then try to get some shit out of them at a later date, we are on our last caller, but thanks again for your call, Rico. Yeah, that, Very was, cool call. that was really interesting. Kat Riona, our last caller, where are you calling from? And thanks for sticking in there. Hi guys. Can you hear me? Yes. Okay. Thank you so much for taking my call. Um, I love you guys. I have been uh, um, a long-time listener, first-time caller, um, yeah. huge fan of Empire Files, um, Media Roots Radio, listen to every episode. I miss Eyes Left. Um, there, might be yeah. a, there might be a comeback soon. Okay, good. Very That's good. Info for staying on the line for so long. I'll give you that. <laughs> okay. okay, excellent. Thank you. Um, yeah, because we need more, um, we need more uh, attention to convincing military people to leave, um, 
and we need more attention to um, convincing cops to leave their jobs. But anyway, that's not the okay. So <laughs> the topic of this um, of of uh, 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 okay. So I, I think um, Shelley and others uh, and Abby and uh, um, and Robbie. Well, I mean, uh, several several different people have brought up um, the point the the points. Um, uh, regarding both intent and how settler colonialism plays into our consumption of these substances. Um, and I think that intersection is one of the more salient points for me of this discussion. Um, because I think that, um, you know, we, w it, Okay, well, first of all, I'm, I'm calling in from Tongva land in so-called Los Angeles, which I know is where y'all are as well. Um, you know, we, we often as, if, and I, I, I am, I consider myself a rehabilitating settler colonial. We often, um, appropriate, um, healing practices and arts, um, with the intent of, um, of increasing our good feelings so that we can recuperate our participation in the in the system which is destroying those healing arts. Um, so that is that is an intent that I think is unhelpful, um, and I, I I hope that that if if people are it, it terrifies me to think of of um, of how. Um, you know, the, the, how the institutions run by those in power, such as the CIA, as has been the discussion during this call, um, are using uh, <laughs> substances against us. And I can't even, it's almost like too much for me to fathom. So I have to think of how are we, how are we, um, how are we appropriating and, uh, and what is our intent in doing so? And um, it, to, to me, there is a dividing line. Are we are we using substances to um, to make ourselves feel better, or are we using the substances, uh, as Abby was saying, to um, to increase our ability to um, think of ways to you know, to, to create a different world. Um, but that's actually not the, not the reason I am calling. I wish I would have called last week. I will, I will take 15 seconds more and I will end because no I know you guys are, are trying to get off the phone here no um, or get off the call. Um, uh, in terms of settler colonialism, I'm actually calling with a shameless plea to ask you guys if you would spend even an iota of your time uh, covering our anti-gentrification campaign in Glassell Park, uh, where there, there are several um, gentrifying businesses which are poised to open up and are going to create a Highland Park version 2.0 here and are going to displace and make homeless a lot of people. And I will take my answer off the air. Thank you so much for taking my call. Catriona, shoot me a DM in the Colin app, and I'll uh, make sure to follow up with you. Thanks for that. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, or write us at dosedshow at gmail.com and yeah, let us yeah. know about that campaign. We'll definitely amplify it, and 
we want to be involved in any way that in any way that we can because it's just like we are in the cool homelessness epidemic. Dude. Super cool neighborhood too. It'd be really sad to see all those those old school businesses. Uh, removed yeah, it's or, it's gonna go down. Yeah. What, what what did you say? Can, can you can you give me the can you give me the address one more time? Yeah. I'm so sorry, you guys. Dosed show at gmail.com. Got it. Thank you. And I think you brought up a really good point before about are we using these substances to kind of satiate our consumption and the, you know, the horrifically kind of oppressive system and just make us kind of complacent being like, well, I'm okay with my place in the society and that's that and I'm just going to go about my day. And I think there is an aspect that did proliferate out of the hippie culture and psychedelic psychedelics in general which is like this new age ism especially as someone who lives in la i'm sure that you can identify and relate to this that it it's very strange and i've seen it evolve ideologically to almost like turn people who used to be like more politically astute and more well-rounded consciously to actually becoming like more fascist and like i de- like very hyper identitarian about like themselves like it's all about me and it's kind of going back to that, you know, the secret, you can manifest your own reality, you tune out all negativity, you don't allow anything in that's bad, and it's just all about you, you cultivating and manifesting what you want. Like, y- you envision it, you dream it, it's there. And it's just like a very strange thing, because it's like, th- that's not, for me, it's like the opposite of what we should be thinking of these substances as, you know? And it's a very alarming trend that I see actually happening more and more here in at Los Angeles. And then coupled with that, you have kind of these cult like figures who are just these influencers who just simply hijack and exploit like ancient indigenous, you know, knowledge and tradition and like actually like pretend like they, they just like use and exploit weird like facets of it and then just make like tiktok videos and these weird like instagram influencers who like speak in tongues and there's just like these weird white <laughs> women who are just like you know like doing like these tongue rituals and you're just like what on earth is happening here it's a very strange a world out there sure, but... very strange world out there um and it is very gross feeling but i totally agree with you like again it goes back to intent and for me, like how how can we use these things to advance creative, harness creative ideas about how we can build like a the utopian future that we know we we want like communally, um, and kind of unlock our creativity to do so because I'm I'm just so inundated with like dystopian like post Armageddon like visuals or just like fuck like I guess everyone's conceded that we're just going to be like in a post-apocalyptic world and we're just going to be living in hell because that's that's the trajectory we're going in but it definitely is not helped by these people who just hyper focus in on themselves and and actually exploit these things that we're talking about to just narrow in on that kind of mentality and then of course just ask for tons of money to like you know give you the secret fucking mantra or whatever it's pretty offensive Robbie, thanks for being on Dose with us. Yeah, Dose. Robbie, did you want to end and anything commenting on that or? No, I mean, I, I I pretty much agree with what you just said. Yeah, I mean, I think its intent is very important, and a lot of people, um, you know, even like I was saying earlier, a lot of these even therapists. I mean, how many therapists, you know, have you met out there that aren't good and that seem like they probably shouldn't be therapists? I've met 
quite a few in my lifetime. So <laughs> I wouldn't want, you know, I, I don't trust the therapist in general to have a, be opening psychedelic therapy, um, you know, offices just on a whim because all of a sudden it's decriminalized out here. So, you know, I, it does a lot of those things do make me nervous. Um, but yeah, I mean, you, you put it better than I could have. So I, I don't really have anything more to add than that. I just, uh, really thankful that uh, you guys had me on. I had a lot of fun. It was an amazing time, really fantastic and insightful callers. Just everyone had really, really great stuff to say. We didn't touch upon so many people, John Lilly, Alex Gray, um, you know, Shulgin, we barely touched upon, but we're going to, you know, definitely check out Media Roots Radio four-part series out already. Several more episodes to come. There's so much more to say, um, so much more to explore here, Robbie, and please check us out. Media Roots Radio, support me and my brother on patreon.com slash media roots radio you're fucking awesome you're brilliant um you've inspired me so much in my life and it's it's always amazing to have uh extended conversation with you robbie and super excited to have you on dose my bro robbie uh before you go tell us about the this music you picked for this episode oh yeah this is um that song well let me make sure i get the actual song correctly um it was called read the signpost by a band called 50 foot hose uh that only i think they only released one album from 1969 and it's it's kind of considered something that influenced a lot of like later um industrial bands and stuff but it's it sounds to me like very kind of straight down the middle hippie rock with a lot of like crazy weird sounds you know added on top so um I dig it, but uh, but yeah, it's and on some level, it's a little bit goofy. But um, what uh, was the name of the band again? Called Fifty Foot Hose. Fifty Foot Hose. <laughs> That's what uh, we're going to take you out with tonight. Yeah. Thanks again, everyone, for listening. The dose on Colin. <laughs>